In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the True Life Podcast. We've got a great show for you this evening, this day, this afternoon, whenever you find the time to listen to this. I'm excited to bring to you an incredible gentleman coming all the way from the Netherlands. You may have read some of his published papers in Psychedelics Today. You may have been a fan of his incredible thread work on Twitter that seems like it reads like the Ariadne thread and a Greek tragedy is just connecting all these things. Maybe it's a neuroplasticity thing he's got going on. I don't know. We're going to figure it out, though. He's also a, uh, the PH- a PhD neuroscience candidate, a researcher, and investigator, a lover of life's mysteries, creator of the Stone Gamer and Middle Easy, content creator. And I recommend that everybody check out his link tree, which is in the links below. If you find yourself perusing through his catalog i think that much like myself you will find it like a nice little dose of mdma because it's intoxicating it's inspiring and it leaves you wanting a little bit more zeus i hope that was a good enough intro for you thank you for being here today my friend bro that is an intro of the ages man thank you so much for that talk up dude i feel very honored to have that talk up much love yeah well it's true it's true and i i can say that because i've I find myself in this rare position, Zeus, where I'm getting to like talk to some of my heroes. I'm getting to talk to people on the front lines that are like the heroes of tomorrow. And I feel like in a way, I'm like an Xer, you know what I mean? So I'm kind of bridging this gap between some of the boomers, some of the millennials, some of the, the wise. Like it's fascinating to me. And I'm, I get to see it like emerging so, the same way like a trip emerges. Like you kind of come up a little bit, you catch glimpses of what the peak might be and you come back down. So yeah, I mean it. And some of the, the the first thread that I read of yours the other day was this new sort of study that's coming out of Helsinki where, hey, all of a sudden we're bypassing that 5-HT2A, man. Maybe we could start right there. Yeah, dude. Uh, TRKB, uh, shout out to the University of Helsinki and all of those researchers. Um, so they dro- actually last week, this time last week, they dropped a paper that essentially flips the entire 
script on how we believe psychedelics um, sort of exerts its, you know, antidepressant effects. Right. Uh, for a very long time, we believe that 5-HT2A receptors were responsible for the reported effects of like antidepressants, uh, decreased anxiety, just, you know, um, overall like um, happiness and like well-being. And even to the point where we even said that, you know, the intensity of a trip is, right. you know, correlates with the sort of beneficial properties that you get from a psychedelic because as you understand, 5-HT receptors are responsible for the subjective experience or the actual trip from psychedelics. So that was just a thing that we believed. But this paper that dropped out of Helsinki said, yeah, but there's this other thing happening. This thing that's called TRKB, which is a, I forgot the um, long name, but you could probably search for it. But when you take psychedelics, yes, it binds to serotonin receptors, but it also binds to this thing called TRKB, which is a receptor in itself. And what binds to it is this thing called BDNF, which is also a thing that happens whenever you take psychedelics. This protein goes out to your blood and this protein called BDNF is responsible for, you know, sort of the, the sort of decreased anxiety and all this sort of great stuff that you, you know, hear with psychedelics. But this paper was like, look, actually what we did is we blocked the actual activation of 5-HT2A and we just looked at the, you know, um, TRKB and we saw that people still, or not people, but rats, mice <laughs> still had these antidepressant effects, which is huge, crazy big. So that says that perhaps the antidepressant effect of psychedelics isn't so reliant on 5-HT2A, but perhaps it's reliant on this other thing, which isn't psychoactive. You don't trip off of TRKB. Perhaps it's related to that sort of receptor. So that's groundbreaking. Right. Although I, I do have to say, man, it, it isn't confirmed yet right but right. it's very very interesting that that would drop and that's that's definitely groundbreaking work definitely top five research papers of this entire year easily maybe top three yeah it's 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 a very interesting interesting paper you know at first i thought i might have been sponsored by pfizer because of the findings you know what i mean <laughs> like it seems funny. yeah <laughs> So, so yeah, no, like what you actually said is very interesting because really if you're right. some like tech, you know, tech bro in like San Francisco <laughs> trying to, you know, create a psychedelic that doesn't have the um, psychoactive properties right. of the actual psychedelic, then this TRKB find is really intriguing because you're thinking to yourself, oh my gosh, this could be it. This could be the drug that I'm trying to patent to right. build a psychedelic without the actual psychedelic component. That's the right. dream of all of these pharmaceutical um, companies and everything. But it hasn't been confirmed yet. But it's interesting. It, it's fascinating to think about it. And, and like, I could think of some great uses for that. If someone has like a neurodegenerative disease, you know, or they're, they're on a machine or something like that, that could be something that they could use theoretically that may help attenuate, you know, the ability to relearn something or may help that ability to regain function or something like that. But I, I'm willing to bet 
that down the line, if even if they do find out that this is responsible for some sort of, you know, growth or or psychedelic sort of trip, it would be interesting to see someone that had a psychedelic trip versus someone that uses other substance, you know, and and, and just compare their subjective stories. Because I guess mm-hmm. what I'm trying to get at is a lot of people believe that. Without the terror before the sacred, without the trip, mm. there is no real learning. You know, and, and what do you think about that? So no, no, you you uh, brought up a very excellent point, uh, and I kind of want to throw yeah. the idea of ayahuasca, Ooh, for example. So yeah. uh, ayahuasca, as everyone knows, it's the sort of brew that you can get from indigenous cultures. You can get it in Peru, take it, drink it, and you are tripping for a very long time. But to create ayahuasca, it takes two different things, two different right. um, components. You know, one sort of um, interacts with the other component to make this component, you know, in, uh, interactive for the uh, gut to sort of ingest it. So I, I kind of look at TR, TRKB and and 5-HT receptors perhaps in the same way, ah, in the sense that okay. perhaps mm-hmm. what TRKB does is make your like make you sort of prepare your body to have mm. the subjective trip. And since your body is prepared, then that trip has deeper impacts, like deeper impacts and profound impacts. So, you know, perhaps if you want to look at it from a, from a sort of, um, you know, artsy type of yeah. way, perhaps TRKB is the clay and 5-HT is the person that's like, you know, shaping the vase or whatever you know you have to have both you can't just have a um you know giant glop of clay and you can't have just the hand you right have, to have both so that could be what's happening with trkb and 5ht it's always mm. important you know what and, and, and i want to say you know yeah. a lot of people and this is sort of a thing that you know sort of a habit that people have is we always like to point at a certain thing one certain thing we, and we love to say that is the thing That's that it. causes yep. this very complex thing but in actuality, it's a combination of things that causes a very complex thing because it is a very complex thing. Like, you know, so yeah. it's probably a bunch of things. Yeah, we have we have an incredible pattern of saying things, something definite and having it being wrong. Like, we're the center of the universe. Those are glass around those planets. You know, like we always get it wrong. The one thing we always get right is that we always get it wrong. Get it wrong. Yeah, that's. <laughs> That's a very um, guaranteed, reliable yeah. trait of humans is we just love getting it wrong. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's fascinating. It's fun to get to be part of it. And it must be amazing to be the person that has it right for a period of time. You know, we talk a little bit about science in the beginning of this conversation, why there's gatekeepers. And once there's a theory that people believe in, there's books written about it, there's industries built up around it. It must be an incredible feeling to be the person that had that theory that everybody believes in. So you could see, I mean, I could see why there's so much hope and promise for these different theories that come out. Right. Yeah, no, I mean like, and there's a bunch of different theories. There's tons of theories on how psychedelics exerts is actually its actual effect on the brain when it comes to the, the sort of subjective effects, the actual trip. Uh, There's, there's three theories that are probably the top three theories 
Um, I will be introducing a fourth theory that sort of attaches <laughs> to those theories. But um, but yeah, no, it's 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 really interesting. And and also what you like said is that it, it feels good to be on the top just for a sure. bit. You sure. know, it's 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 like a um, you know, it's like a um, championship uh, boxer that is the um, champion for just a bit of time. Right. And right. they're um, holding the belt and it feels good. But then something, you know, else comes through that sort of better represents that. So. So, yeah, yeah, it's it's interesting. It's very interesting to 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 be on top for that brief period of time. Yeah. So it's you. Know, I read this theory about language a while back and I'm just kind of paraphrasing it. But the theory said something along the lines of you can't come up with an original idea. But you can change the parts of the words to rearrange the idea. And an example they used is, you know, try to come up. We'll just do it. Here, I'll try to give it to you and see if this works. Try to give to me an animal that does not, that doesn't exist and explain it to me. Like what, you know, what does it, what does it look like? Yeah, no. That, that, so, I mean, if you're asking me, I, I mean, I have yeah. a very active imagination, man. Okay. That's that's yeah. So, like, <laughs> I probably not gonna work, but let's try it anyway. Yeah, yeah. So, I would imagine a uh, animal that exists in about f like five or six different dimensions. It's a multi-dimensional animal, and part of its sort of adaptable or survivable um, trait is that it has the ability to, you know, um, go to different dimensions whenever mm -hmm. it's threatened. Uh, so that's, I mean, that okay, you already ruined my example. Damn it. All right. <laughs> no, <but> yeah, <laughs> Thank you dude, for that. that. I, I'm a psychedelic researcher, man. I, I, I know. I'm, <laughs> so the, this is what I was trying to but, go. But let, me, let me tell you my, st yeah. the, the strategy yeah. I was going for was, you know, um, most people would say, would give me attributes of animals that already exist, whether it's a crocodile leg with a unicorn horn that can shape shift into the form of a gorilla. Mm but they're giving you attributes of things that already exist. And according to this theory of language, it backs up that theory saying, you don't come up with something new. You come up with parts of other things and mash them together. And I think that that is what happens in a lot of theories. A lot of the groundbreaking theories we see, they're not so much like, hey, this has never happened before. It's not this original idea, but it's part of, you know, um, Stevens theory, messing with Marshall McLuhan's theory over here. Mm. And then they piece them together in a mm. different, they, they put the variables in a different order and they have a different kind of outcome like that. Is that, do you think that that is something we should look forward to in this new fourth theory that you're putting forth? Yeah. So, <laughs> um, no, no, great, great question. So, <laughs> so, um, I mean, the, the, the thing about like, so, so, so there's, there's, there's like different types of theories. There's right. There's, there's, for example, um, theories that are unfalsifiable, which means okay. you can't prove if they exist or if they don't exist. Like know? God, like Jesus. Like God, for example. Yeah, right. yeah. For, which is like, okay, that's cool. But then there's other theories that are based around available evidence. Mm. And the, so that seems like it should be a consistent thing. But right. evidence in science, data in science, is like looking at something in a prism in the mm. sense that if you exist in this bubble of you know psychopharmacology right. then you view data in the same perception in the same angle 
But this data, if you just, you know, sort of go a different angle, it could look completely different. You know, if, if you say, oh, well, perhaps we should take out what we put in or, you know, right. put in what we take out. And then, of course, you get a different sort of angle. That's how we found out that the DMN exists in the brain is that uh, a fantastic researcher found that. So for here's a great example. Yeah. So uh, the um, DM. So wait, this is like 2002, I think. And we so whenever we do imagings of brains, right, whether it's fMRI, EEG, we always have this like resting state. And there's always these like, you know, weird sort of fluctuations that happen. But 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 for a long time, we just, you know, sort of peel that off. We're like, oh, just, you know, take that away from the sort of things that we're uh, doing, you know, the tasks that, that we're doing. And that was considered like static noise just like whatever for a very long time for for decades for decades and there was this fantastic scientist from i believe washington that said you know hold up maybe we shouldn't take that out perhaps whatever we're doing let's say for example they're you know looking at a red dot and we see all these different waves and everything perhaps we should delete that and focus on this sort of static that we've been mm. ignoring and of course, he did that, and he found that our brain is actually operating in this very sort of, you know, relaxed state called the uh, called the um, DMN, which, which is a, a very sort of um, state that we go in whenever we're sort of, you know, relaxing, chilling. And so, for example, that's a that's a great example of science looking at something from mm. a different angle. But okay. the theory, as far as psychedelics. So right now, there's like three theories. There's Rebus, which is from Robin Carhart Harris. That was formerly at Imperial College London. Uh, it's called Relax Beliefs Under Psychedelics. And then there's the Cortal Striatal Cortical Theory by Katrin Preeler from the University of Zurich. And then there's the Cortical Claustrum. Cord no, there's the cortical claustrum cortical theory from Minaj Das at John Hopkins. And all these theories are based on really one thing. It's the okay. fact that two parts of the brain, the top part of the brain, which is, you know, sort of how we experience vision, auditory, all of the sensory information that we see, you open your eyes, look at a truck, and it will end up in the back of the head or, you know, wherever the top part of the brain, that like wrinkly part of the brain that you always see in like um, Halloween films and stuff. Right? That wrinkly <laughs> part is the sensory area. Right. But then there's a deeper part, the subcortical areas. And that's really where all all the information is actually processed. You know, okay. that's like the um, thalamus, the um, claustrum, where all of the information that we see from our um, eyes go to the thalamus and, and like other sort of subcortical parts. And that's where things are processed. So things are processed and then they, you know, um, go to these top areas, right? right? So imagine the subcortical area as sort of the projector in a theater that's processing this like real, just processing it, processing, and then it gets projected to the actual screen, which is the sensory area, right? So Obviously, you know, things happen, things, things go. And when you aren't on site or when, when you know, you're just sort of um, hanging out, that sort of process is perfectly fine. But when you're on psychedelics, that processing 
information gets disrupted. And the information, the visual information that's supposed to you know, go to the projector is now all of a sudden going to the left wall of the um, theater or it's mm. going to um, chair, you know, or e e like perhaps it's even going back into the projector. So mm. it's this, you know, very disruptive process that happens with psychedelics, which is the reason why we have extreme sensory perception that is a little bit altered because there's a disruption. And so all those theories that I just talked about are based on that subcortical cortical um, communication. Okay. But the theory that I'm presenting in this summer, whenever it gets published, <laughs> is perhaps those two areas aren't the only areas. And there's a third area that doesn't even exist in the brain. That's all I'm going to say. Okay. Man, <laughs> man. First, I did great job at explaining that process. That was beautiful. And it was entertaining <laughs> and it was well done. And I, it's polished. It's, it's amazing. I, I was reading through some of your, some of your articles on there. And I love the way you described the idea of, uh, I think you had, had said something along the lines of it being almost like a captcha for consciousness. <laughs> like that was, I thought that was such a brilliant way to put it. Maybe you can break that down for, maybe you could say that little yeah. part for the people there. Yeah, no. So, um, yeah, I believe that was when I talked about, uh, what are, what's a visual trip maybe. Right. And, uh, yeah. So yeah. capture for consciousness. So, so this process that I was talking about, the subcortical cortical process, the information going, you know, to the cortical regions was in top regions. So, Actually, it's it's a little bit, you know, the complexity of it is a bit higher. So when information goes to our subcortical regions from our eyes or our ears, you know, we sort of um, capture it like a um, like a um, baseball, and then we put. So when it goes to these subcortical regions, our thalamus and other subcortical regions do something which is pretty bonkers. It's called predictive processing. And what predictive processing is, is that these subcortical regions try to, to predict what we're seeing before we even see it hmm. and give our sensory areas a prediction of what we see before we even see it. And the reason why that is, is because if we were to take the raw feed of our reality mm -hmm. without any processing, it would just overload our brain. Our brains would just fry. It would just like <laughs> nuke up like some, you know, computer that's like overheated, right? So in order to prevent this process of our brains imploding in our head, our brains do a fantastic job at predicting what we're going to see before we see it. For example, you're looking at your computer right now, right? The edges of your computer monitor, your keyboard, the the T, the R, the you know mouse. You don't have to always verify that it's there because we understand physics in the sense that mm -hmm. that T really isn't going to go anywhere. It's going to stay right. on your keyboard and for a very long time, and unless you like pick it off, you know you're 
computer monitor is going to be the same rectangle shape. It's, it isn't going to change. It's going to shift. So your brain understands this. So it doesn't really have to, you know, process, okay, uh, rectangle, 14 inch by whatever, every single, every single time. It, it just sort of gives our sensory area a prediction of what right. it is because it really isn't going to change. So sometimes there's feedback. And the feedback is that capture process. The feedback is sometimes the information that goes to our sensory area, which is the projector screen, actually sort of goes back to the projector. And it's like, okay, is this what you're getting? And it's like, okay, cool. Well, then that's that's cool. You know, it's fine. Keep on doing what you're doing. Is this is this what it is? Okay, cool, cool, cool. Is this a orange truck or is this a, okay orange truck? Okay, cool, 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 cool. So that's the capture process. But when we're on psychedelics, that capture process, it's not accurate. And <laughs> perhaps what we think is an orange truck could be mm. an orange car, or perhaps we perceive something that's an orange truck, but it's just some, you know, orange sign or whatever, you right. know, or what, whatever, you know. So, so that's the capture process. And that capture process gets a little bit, you know, twisted whenever we're on psychedelics. Yeah. I had this idea and I'm just throwing this out here. It seems to me like, it's not uncommon for people to have like synesthesia sometimes during a deep trip. And I, I often wondered, is that like the visual information being processed in like Broca's area? Or is it the information that should be processed in one area being processed in a different area? That's a great question. And yeah, um, synesthesia is the, so if people don't really know what that means, yeah. that's basically when, Let's say, for example, you're like tripping or it even happens with people right. that aren't tripping. Sure. You know, um, so let's say you perhaps, you know, you see a song, you see mm -hmm. uh, colors color reverberate in your yeah. field of vision, you know, or perhaps you you can you can like taste a sound, you know, mm. there's sort of, sort of the, um, the sensory areas get a little bit twisted. So your question is, why is that? happening and and you're saying that perhaps it's the information going to different areas right so i believe that's the case and let me just throw a little okay please. vision information at you so this sort of wrinkly area in our brain and i keep on talking about this this is called the visual cortex right and it's in the back of the head right here the back of the head is where we process or where we it's the end result of all of our vision right here okay. in the back of the head and that's that's like the reason why for example in um boxing or uh, um mma mm. you can't hit in the back of the head because when you get hit in the back of the head you sort of lose your vision for a, a bit you know because right. it's where all vision is ultimately concluded in the back of the head so this vision this um this visual cortex is actually a very layered area there's six there's visual uh, systems one two three four five all the way to six wow um and it's a very it's so what does this mean it, it's it's a consider it like a hierarchy of information okay. and visual system one is where we process very basic visual information we process for example colors hmm. um sort of the 
outlines of shapes, you know, globs and blobs and, you know, not really defined details, but like globs and blobs and everything and a little bit of color and everything. But as you go down, let's say visual system two, you get, or your visual, visual system layer two, you get sort of a finer definition. You get some details, you, you get, you know, and then of course you go to three, you go to four, you get fine details of the face. You, you get mm. like, um, you know, sort of how to process where something would be via, you know, location or, you know, somebody's, um, you know, going left or right. right. So it's, it's, so as you go deeper, you have this sort of defined vision. So, and, the, and, and then there's people that have disorders, for example, right. there's a, there's a uh, disorder called, um, uh, I, I believe it's called uh, aphasia, which is, Let's say, for example, a person has damage in like visual system four, which is a very deep uh, layer, you know, so they have this thing called face blindness, which is they'll see a person's face. They'll see the shape. They'll see the color. They'll see the skin. Everything looks fine, but they can't see the um, eyes or the mouth or the nose because that's the fine detail where that's processed in D4. So they live their entire lives just looking at people with blank faces. Wow. Um, it's pretty, pretty well. Stuff. So going back to psychedelics, mm -hmm. yes, I, and, and I have a paper coming out about this actually. Um, really what's happening. I believe what's happening is that let's go back to the subcortical region. So the yeah, subcortical yeah. region, the, the thalamus is where things are processed. So look at that as like a UPS shipping center. All right. <laughs> A UPS processing plant with people um, and, and all the uh, packages are um, coming in from, you know, um, wherever. Okay, this one goes to um, Idaho. Okay, this one goes to Florida. Okay, boom. Okay, boom, boom. And those locations are locations in the uh, visual system. You know, okay, this thing goes to visual layer two, visual layer one. But then when you're on, when you're on anything, LSD, psilocybin, this distribution of information doesn't really go to the right place. Perhaps something that's very basic goes to a very complex area. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden this very complex area is dealing with some basic information and it's, and it's taking this basic information and hyper complexing it for mm -hmm. really um, no reason at all. Or let's say you have a very complex package or in, like input package and sure. it goes to a very basic area. So now you have like, a very complex it's it's the equivalent of taking a a PlayStation 5 game and putting it in a you know Xbox one you know like a basic right. Xbox it's like oh well this is too complex for this it's not <laughs> gonna work and that's the reason why mm. um I there's some but but going back to what you said is that yes in very acute doses which is very big doses mm. like big big doses <laughs> <laughs> this sort of um you know information distribution goes beyond the visual cortex mm. and it goes to like um auditory cortexes right where oh this is this isn't even going to um idaho this is going to like um alpha centauri galaxy <laughs> you know <laughs> yeah till i know exactly <laughs> yeah so like all of a sudden you're like seeing led zeppelin 
you know, you're seeing like Robert Plant or whoever, you know, like you're, you're, you're like seeing these like beautiful guitar riffs and everything. And inversely, you're seeing sound, you know, you're, you're, or, or you're, I'm hearing vision, you know, so that, that's, but that's in extreme, extreme right. doses. Yeah. 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 It's so, just, just thinking about it can lead you to have a, like if you just took time to really think about all of that, about how the way something very complex could be processed in a basic area or something very basic could be, you know, processed in a very unique and dissective way. Sometimes I think what I say, my wife dissects it in a very dissective way. That's very complex when it's supposed to be very simple like that. But, you know, it, it's, you can, you can really get a different perspective of that, but when it happens on a high dose of something, you really are treated to an insight that is unique, you know, and like those are rare to have. And there's so much inspiration that can come from having a unique experience. And maybe that's why, maybe, maybe that is the beginning of the mystical experience. Are those things kind of tied together? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, no, great uh, question. And, and I always have to remind people, you know, like, it isn't just you are tripping. It's every cell in your brain is also tripping. Wow. Great point. Beautifully said. So there's a lot of stuff happening. And the <laughs> mystical experience, the mystical experience is 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 a very intriguing thing. And, and I have a few friends, a few scientist friends, uh, particularly shout out to my friend in uh and uh Rotterdam, uh Yost, um, who believes, he believes that the idea of even including that in the conversation of psychedelic science is faulty on, it's, it's, it's like faulty. Like he believes that mm. we shouldn't say things like mystical experience because he believes that what happens is science becomes pseudoscience whenever you add mm. spiritualism and like mysticism mm. and i do I, I do get his point i do get his point he's a fantastic scientist one of the top dudes out there um but psychedelics it resides so heavily in the subjective experience agreed yeah and it's something that we can't ignore like let's say for example like Irritable bowel syndrome, you know, it's, 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 it's a, a science that is a very objective science. Like you feel it, you can like, you feel your gut, like, you know, but yeah. psychedelics, it's, it's almost all perceptual. And whenever we get into things like perception, then you, you have to get into things like philosophy and things like you have to existentialism and things like right mysticism because all of that also resides in a very subjective point like you can't prove that a person's mystical although i i can say that there's a guy from uh harvard uh michael ferguson michael ferguson shout out to michael ferguson that is trying to find um correlations with the brain and spirituality in religion um uh, and mm. he's and i and i always say that and judging by his research and his data I, I always say yo bro ferguson you're you like realize that your data is congruent with 
psychedelic data, you know, like you're talking about the same areas of the brain, you know, but he's like, oh, no, it's different. And it could be different. <laughs> but uh, but uh, mysticism is very interesting. I, I think that, you know, I, I went to this thing called ICPR and I listened to uh, Roland Griffiths, who's mm. a genius in the psychedelic space. And he actually said that he, he he's the person who brought that term to science mystical experiences in accordance to psychedelics and he the inventor of mrs you know the, that term said that perhaps that was a mistake hmm. and 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 i'm not sure if you're familiar with roland griffins but he's a sure. guy that's on um he has a terminal illness and he announced it when I was in the audience and it blew everyone's mind. And even after he announced it, he still said that him including the term mysticism in psychedelics was perhaps a fault. Hmm. I would say that, I would say, I don't know, man. It's, it's, it's something that, it, it, I don't know. It's very, it's a very complex uh, topic, and I have a degree in religion. Like I have a bachelor's in religion, I mean, and it's still a complex topic for me to talk about because it's so, it's so dense. It's so dense, and there's so many different angles. There's so many different ways to look at it. That, yeah, I, I don't know. So your question is, should it be in should it be in psychedelics, and what is the what is the mystical experience? The mystical experience for some is very real. And if it's, if, if it's a real experience for some, mm -hmm. then it's a real experience. You cannot deny a person's perspective. You, I mean, you know, a person can experience something mm -hmm. in a psychedelic state that only they will experience on the entire planet for the rest of time. And it doesn't take away that that experience is real it just says that that experience is very unique to that person. So mystical experiences are real to the person experiencing the mystical experience. <laughs> I'm going to read you this quote. One of my, that, that's yeah. really well, well said. I'm going to need to play that back and write that down. <laughs> it's pretty <laughs> awesome, man. One of my favorite philosophers is Alfred North Whitehead. And I want to read you this quote and get your opinion on it. He says, mysticism leads us to try to create out of the mystical experience something that will save it or at least save the memory of it. Mysticism, clarification, action. What do you think about that? So Alfner Whitehead is a fantastic author. He wrote a great right. process in reality. Absolutely. Um, it's a fantastic book. Um, can you repeat the, the end yeah. of that? Yeah. Yeah. yeah or just the whole thing. The whole thing. Yeah. yeah. The, the, the end was interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and, and it, it makes sense once you – I've read it a ton of times, so I've been able to yeah, pick yeah. it apart. But let me give it to you again. Yeah, yeah, sure. Mysticism leads us to try to create out of the mystical experience something that will save it mm. or at least mm. save the memory of it. Mm. Mysticism, clarification, action. Mm. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I like that. Yeah, and – I love that. And I think what he's getting at. 
me too, man. <laughs> I think what he's what he's getting at is that the significance of a mystical experience shouldn't be discounted. Um, and it shouldn't be discounted because from that mystical experience can set off a cascade right. of different things. Like a person can change their entire life from a mystical experience. Yep. Um, I've even witnessed a person have a very intense salvia trip uh, where it was a very mystical experience. They saw God in the sky and they saw the world ending and uh, and then they sort of left the left their job they're uh, working at, moved halfway across the country nice. and, and and changed religions that within like a, about a month. So uh, so, yeah, it's. Is, yeah, it was pretty wild. So I think that we cannot discount the significance of a mystical experience. And the reason why is because that mystical experience, it's not so much external as mm. it is an internal calculation of the external world that we're in. It's it's a internal processing. And this yeah. internal processing is built from a lot of things. It's built from upbringing, built from environmental built from relationships built from our perception on reality built from things that we've read mm -hmm. and it's a way to process this very outer worldly experience that doesn't really have an explanation you know and, and and that's what i'm saying the psychedelic experience still doesn't really have an explanation and that's yeah something that i want to say it's it isn't we haven't concluded what a psychedelic experience is so at this point using your internal sort of processing capabilities to understand this is valid and if that happens to be a you know a spiritual or a mystical experience and so be it so be it yeah i i love it for for me when i think about it it It's constantly changing. When I read it, you know, it's it's almost like a psychedelic. It's it's almost like a magic spell because it's psychedelic in nature. And when I think about it, you know, so much of clarification comes from the ineffable. Like some people have like this big journey where language fails, but you you know you try to harness and bring something back from that time. And as you integrate it, or as you you know, maybe a month goes by, but you're still thinking about it. All of a sudden, there's this moment of clarification. You know, and so when I see that that stepping stool of mysticism, clarification, and then action, like it just seems like so much of the work we do to make our lives better happens internally from taking the time to see ourselves in a way in which we've never seen it, which is kind of mystical, you know, and then you can really begin to clarify it by looking at the relationships around you. And then you could take a step, maybe a small step, maybe, maybe. Maybe it's a big step like your friend or or maybe maybe it's Carl Jung's red book. You know what I mean? Like maybe that's the mysticism or something like that. But it's and on some level, the reason I I I, I love the idea of the mystical experience is that it speaks to the heart of every person because every person can have it and every person can interpret a mystical experience 
in a way that is profound. And I can understand why people would use it as a pejorative, like, and it does get in the way and it clouds research and it's not measurable. And there's a lot of problems with it, but it's those same problems that make it beautiful. You know what I mean? It, it's, it's, I don't know. It, it's something that people wrestle with, people embrace it. But for me, it's, it, it's just so beautiful. And I, I love the idea of it. And I, I, I could I could see why your friend the scientist would would potentially be boggled by it like quit bringing that word in here man you're ruining the whole damn thing can't measure that how do you manage what you don't measure you know what I mean <laughs> but especially in science yeah yeah if you can't quantify it then it doesn't exist basically so that's a that's another point like it seems to me that what we're seeing now and I bet you'll see this in Denver is this you know maybe the the reemergence of spirituality into science. What's your take on that? Yeah, man. Um, so let me tell you about my own background. So, Please, uh, man, I would love that. yeah, yeah, for sure, man. So as you know, as you said, I'm, I'm getting my PhD uh, in Maastricht University, which is in uh, Holland, where the like top three places and on the planet for research um let's i freaking love being here but going all the way back man to like when i was a kid so a lot of people that are probably watching this or even perhaps yourself you probably had a you know a christian upbringing you know uh and and that's fine that's fine uh but my upbringing when i was a kid i grew up in louisiana so my upbringing was voodoo it was creole oh. voodoo Creole voodoo, man. That's that's how I understood my reality since I was a kid was with Creole voodoo. And for example, like when I was a kid, our, my <laughs> grand, yeah, epic, it's, I, mean, I love it. It's it's pretty epic, yeah, man. So it it and and of course, what that is is that yeah, you've probably heard of the whole you know dolls and everything and sticking and needles and all, but there's a lot of like conjuring also. Lots of mm. people that are like town um, elders coming in. Because there's some dispute in the community, they like come in and they sit down and they get inhabited, inhabited by spirits that help solve problems or that help things, you know. So I saw a lot of that, and it's pretty wild, man. It's it's very interesting. So that was my entire reality. I I thought right. the world operated through external forces that were beyond our comprehension in the sense of uh, like a spirit, like, like a, not even a spiritual world, but a world filled with um, like entities mm. that had power over our reality. So then I, when I was a kid, my, my you know, parents got a job and they, or my dad got a job. We all moved to Texas, which is a very Christian area. So all of a sudden, I went from believing in voodoo gods and queens and uh, deities and, you know, seeing people sacrificing animals and chickens in order to, you know, shape reality to all of a sudden Jesus, Jesus saves, God's here. I'm like, what is going on? Why is this dude like what? I was like, what's happening? You know, so I was so bewildered that, you know, graduated high school and then I went to the University of Arizona and I I got two bachelors. I got one bachelor in psychology and one bachelor in religion. Cause I'm like, mm. man, this is wild. <laughs> and so, 
and 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 then you know so i then i you know went to get my masters and you know then phd but so i i do understand the idea of spirituality i've learned mm. a lot about mysticism i've done right. i've taken many courses on mysticism some of my favorite courses are on mysticism that i, that I took but i'm also a scientist you know and when you're a scientist, you have to you have sort of an obligation to look at reality in a very factual sense. And the reason why is you want to you you want to report back factual information about our reality in order for us to understand our reality. That's very important. So when spirituality, which is something that is like really unfalsifiable right when when you incorporate spirituality into psychedelics i mean i do have to say it, it, it i've i've been at a lot of conferences and i've seen lots of costumes lots of outfits lots of people call themselves a shaman <laughs> that looks like you know a do you know whatever I, I i've seen all this stuff and i've seen a lot of people walking around and and and, and i do want to say that spirituality and i'm not saying all spirituality but i'm saying like a hyper spirituality being represented in conferences is almost a direct response to the idea of science being incorporated so let me, what does that even mean okay, okay so yeah. A lot of people believe that you know scientists hold authority over the psychedelic experience. That's a belief that people think. I don't believe that, but that's mm. what a lot of people think. That scientists are the final um, arbiter of the uh, of the uh, psychedelic experience, and and they're seen as like the the you know authorities. So okay, spirituality gets included into this in order to combat that idea of scientists holding authority over mm -hmm. the psychedelic experience and it's but it's like hyper express so you have people that you know say that they're shamans say that they're psychedelic this or that lots of turquoise jewelry on you know whatever it is and i think it comes off if it's too extreme it comes off a bit goofy mm. you know it comes off a bit goofy and 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 i think when it comes to psychedelics when it comes to like, you have to respect the indigenous practices of the people before you that took psychedelics, that took ayahuasca, that took mushrooms. Sure. Yeah, you have to respect that for sure. And if you don't, then you know that sucks. You know, and and of course that's something that's that we've seen before in history when a certain yeah. culture brings forth something interesting. Like let's say for example. Um, you know, uh, here, here's a good example. Let's let's say, for example, you know, black, um, you know, black jazz artists bringing forth um, jazz and like and then uh, and then they're sort of like, you know, pushed away. And then um, Elvis takes this and right? makes his own thing. And he blows up, you know, so it's 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 like you have to respect who brought it to the forefront. So I do like that. And I do love how psychedelics tends to do that. But man. You've probably been to the same conferences, dude, where you go and it's like, geez, like, is this like a cosplay event or is this like what's happening? There's people, you know, that aren't even indigenous and that's fine. I'm not saying that, <laughs> you know, but there's people that are just really taking it a step further. And, and then they're including stuff like tarot and horoscopes and 
crystal healing, which is just pseudoscience. There's nothing proving that. Just all of these sort of wacky things get thrown into the psychedelic sphere. And I think that's the reason why my friend from Rotterdam's like, bro, this is right. what happens whenever you include mysticism in mm. science is that all these wackadoodle things sort of get thrown in there. And so I, I see his point. And, and we have to come yeah. to a very sort of fine balance, a sort of equilibrium sure. as to include spirituality and science into these events and conferences and, of course, the entire field of psychedelics. Yeah, that was really it was really well said. It's on some level, though. I mean, there's people that make the argument that science is like a religion, right? Because it seems that there's there like you know, one thing we never measure in science is like what time what day the study was done? What day was the study done and what year? Like, where were we at in the universe when that study happened? Were we like on you know by Alpha Centauri over here, or were you in a, the galactic year? Are there seasons in a galactic year? And I realize that's irrelevant because you can't figure it out. But is it really irrelevant? Like, it might not be. What? what where were we at? Where's the globe tilted towards? You know what I mean? Where's the magnetic pole that day? <laughs> Actually, no. Listen, listen. No, you brought up a fantastic point. So um, I believe in the uh, '80s there was a physicist from, I believe, Connecticut or somewhere in America, the East Coast. <laughs> shout out to Connecticut. And shout out to Connecticut, yeah. Yukon. <laughs> 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 and, uh, <laughs> and, and so what they were doing was they were testing out um, this. They had this experiment and they, 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 they were trying to sort of isolate some, you know, complex structure, you know, whatever physicists do, you know, try, they're isolating something right. and they found it and they reported it. And then this other lab tried to try to sort of do that experiment and they couldn't replicate that finding and they're like well we we can't replicate the finding you know we can't we can't do it we've like tried it and then those scientists in uh connecticut went to the other uh place and they're like they're like look this, this is how you do it this is how you do it this 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 and this and it didn't work out and they're like what come to find out the Atmospheric conditions of Connecticut compared to, I think, um, Sweden are completely different. Mm. Therefore, the results were completely different because they were based in part to atmospheric conditions existing for the you know experiments that sort of come to fruition. So, yes, there are things that we should sort of take note. Um there are things like like that, and, and and I would say when it comes to time duration, or when it comes to when studies right. are done, I would say that we've done so. So when you do a study, for example, like a psychedelic study, you dose a person and then you have them wait, and they come back and they get dosed again, and it's really irrespective. Like it doesn't matter if it's Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday; they just get dosed. So. <laughs> I think if we, if we, if there was a sort of time duration thing in the sense that, oh, on Tuesdays, people trip harder than Wednesdays, we would have totally saw that for sure by now. But, but there are things like atmospheric conditions that need to be accounted for in certain studies. Yeah. I've, I've even heard like, you know, obviously I, I don't, I can't have any research in front of us like this and this. I read this somewhere, so take this with a grain of salt. But yeah. I even heard that, 
you know, the speed of light is somewhat in question, like depending when you, when you do it, where you do it at, like, there's not like a real constant. It's not always boom. It's, it's, that's ah, in this range somewhere right there. But if you just start thinking about how giant concepts that may be partially 85% true, well, that's a great number, 90% true. It still leaves a lot of room for error, mm. but you know, you have to, I, I guess on some level, if you want to navigate reality, you got to get as close as you can with the tools that you have. But yeah, on, on some level, mm. I do see this, this place that we're going through and, and psychedelics and, and, and the different plant medicines and entheogens and just the way they change our perceptions have an incredible opportunity for us to change the way we see the world. That's exciting for me, whether it's science, whether it's relationships, whether it's mental illness. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm just stoked to be alive at a time like this. You know, I, as we're talking about this sort of, you know, the way in which the brain perceives things and, and things like that, I have a question that I've always wanted to ask someone that maybe that has the experience that you have. And it is this, this idea that Marshall McLuhan gave us about hot mediums and cold mm. mediums. The hot mm. mediums are like, you know, uh, like television or social media where you're getting the idea prepackaged and boom, put right in your head versus a cold medium like reading or, um, you know, uh, listening to radio, something where you have to come up with your own mental imagery. And I'm just wondering mm. – is that process that's got to be processed different in the brain, right? Like if I'm if I'm getting a mental image from television where I'm just eating popcorn and taking in the latest, I don't know, um, kids movie with my daughter, versus I'm reading a book intently and trying to imagine the characters in that book. What mm. what? How is that information being processed in my brain differently? Mm. Great question, and the answer is wild. <laughs> Love it, man. <laughs> so, okay, let's say for example, you're like reading a book, right? Okay. And the book's fantastic, and you're watching a, a TV show, and the TV show is fantastic, right? In the brain, right? You watch a TV show, and obviously, there's visual cortex information activity happening, you know, obviously because you're looking at something and you're processing mm -hmm. and then you're seeing it. So if you had a, you know, fMRI hooked up to your head or EEG or fNIRS, you would see the actual activity in the visual cortex because you're looking at something, right? Right. But here's where it gets well. So without the TV, if you're just in a blank room, you can visualize imagine what you saw on tv the characters you know the features the eyes the feet everything have this visual picture in your head you're imagining this and it shows up in your visual cortex exactly the same so your brain does a poor job distinguishing from what you see to what you imagine hmm. because that activity looks exactly the same in the visual cortex, which is pretty wild. And that's yeah. wild in the sense that just our imagination, yeah, our imagination 
has physical control over what our brain processes as reality. So your reality is reality, even though it's not reality in actuality. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 and so, so here's the, so there's a thing called the perky effect, right? Okay. And the perky effect was this very brilliant scientist from like 1910, I, I believe, 1918, way ahead of her time, actually. It was a mm. woman scientist. And she discovered that she had this really cool research where she let she like had a group of people in there and she said okay i want you to visualize a purple triangle right and she had a sort of white wall or a white board and there and you know she had people okay i, I visualize the angles visualize the color visualize everything about the purple triangle and then what she would do is she would have an actual purple triangle, but slowly, very faintly introduces purple triangle in the field of vision that she said, imagine it in. Hmm. And what she found is that people couldn't tell if they were imagining the purple triangle or if it was actually being shown to them. I want to do that experiment. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that the uh, perky effect is one of the most interesting things about perceptual science and it's still applicable. We still have not proven it wrong. Therefore it shows you that our imagination has a strong, strong physical control over our brain activity, which as well. And so do you, is, do you think that our imagination is closely tied to the spoken word versus the written word? So, <laughs> so yes. And there's research that shows that. Yeah, for sure. And I want to say this, okay. the spoken word is a very mm. important thing to say. Cause when you speak, you hear yourself speak so you almost reinforce what's mm. being said whereas if you just think something then you only have one single perception if you say something and you hear yourself saying it it reinforces this sort of greater feedback of okay you know i'm a great person i'm a bad person you know where if you think right i'm a good person that person it's different it's a different thing so spoken word is definitely interesting because you, yeah it's definitely an interesting thing uh, so yes, the answer is yes. Yeah, I, I, it would be interesting to, in some studies with psychedelics, you know, use the spoken word as a, a frame of reference versus like, you know, someone, you can't really read if you're on a high dose or something like that, but th maybe there's an experiment that could be done to understand, maybe with some neural feedback, you could see the parts of the brain that light up when you're using the spoken word. Like, I think that would be a cool thing to think about it. That gets me on the idea of like all of a sudden we're beginning to see in some of um, I know that um, Nick Murray down in Jamaica is doing some really interesting work with with neurofeedback and traumatic brain injury or PTSD. And it's going a long way in helping people not only understand what's happening to them as they feel it, 
through the experience, but then getting to match up the imagery with the way they feel. So that like, it sounds like they're getting another layer of understanding, which is always helpful when you're trying to fix a problem. What's your take on the neural feedback aspect of it? Dude. Yeah, man. Uh, when it comes to that, I got to give a shout out to one of my colleagues, Daniela. Um, she is really crushing it when it comes to that. She actually works with these patients called locked in patients, mm, which are okay. people that necessarily can't say things and they're sort of have this sort of, you know, state in which they're in and they, they're, they can't say anything, but she has really done some groundbreaking work in the sense that she through the, through a lot of coding and through functional infrared spectroscopy, which is a sort of way to image the brain. She has created a brain computer interface that essentially a person it's hard, it's hard. so okay uh let's say for, for example you want to say i have a cat right a person will see in a, a interface and it'll have like okay what's the most common first word set in a sentence i you you know question or whatever and so a person can actually select okay through thinking about something okay uh i and then you know i have i give you know what's the most common mm -hmm. word after that so through this processing she can give people the ability to communicate wow. with a person based on brain computer interface. Um, so when it comes to feedback, uh, that and that wow. is a sort of uh, yeah. little, um, you know, um, hyper complex way to sort of uh, show feedback in the brain. Uh, but I also want to go back to something that you said. Yeah, very, please, very interesting. Man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very interesting. So uh, there was a scientist, uh, I believe from Portugal, uh, could be wrong, uh, but it was a woman that wrote a fantastic paper, I believe. I think it's called the entropic tongue Ooh. uh and i i'm pretty sure that's the name yeah the entropic tongue it was published in 2021 uh by uh i think it was camila sands and i want to say i don't know portugal or like some like arch some or maybe like argentina or something okay but um she looked at the how people talk and how people arrange words under LSD. Mm. And okay. she found that um, obviously when you're on LSD and you're <laughs> trying to sort of explain something or describe something, things get really um, mm. like disorganized and not yeah. in a bad way. You know, whenever you hear something like disorganization, you always think, Oh, the, bedrooms disorganized there's clothes everywhere and or whatever but language is a little bit different um in the sense that let's say i'm describing a car and i'm saying okay this car it's gray it has four wheels it has four doors and all of those terms are factually correct because it's just a description of the car but she found that when we're when we're under um lsd the organization of how we convey our external reality 
gets way entropic in the sense that as opposed to saying that that's a great car with four wheels, if I were an LSD, I would say, you know, the gray on that car reminds me of the gray that I saw when I was a kid and the gray covers the car in a very illustrious way, hiding the inner interior of the metallic body that controls. So, so you have all of these yeah. very uh, fruitful uh, artsy ways to explain something. And she found that under LSD and perhaps other psychedelics, I would assume other psychedelics since they sort of have mm -hmm. the same property yeah. that, uh, that it, and, and then it, it basically helps us or it, it enables us to describe things or talk about our external reality and very sort of an unorganized way, which also is an indicator of creativity. And we've done research at our lab on MDMA and creativity. And we found that, um, actually, I got to give a shout out to Kim Coopers, uh, who ran some fantastic work along with Natasha Mason. And they, um, they brought this term to fruition called... Um, Called uh, watch. I'm, I'm gonna forget it right on the podcast. Dang, <laughs> I'm sorry, Kim. I'm sorry, Natasha. But but they but essentially they they found that by a a sort of indicator of creativity is how you can take something that's very structured and rearrange it into something else. Uh, for example, like if you give a person um, LSD and you give them a paperclip and then you say, okay, I want you to find you know every mm -hmm. single way you could make this paperclip something, then they will find a higher amount of ways to make this paperclip into something different than compared to a person that isn't on LSD. So, but when it comes to language, it's the exact same. It, it increases this disorganized thought, which helps us mm. build something greater. So psychedelics, creativity, thumbs up. Yeah, you know, I, I'm always reminded of the, uh, I have no idea who did this study, but everybody can look it up. It's when you they give like the spiders LSD and you watch mm. the way in which they create their web and you're like, whoa, look at this one. You know, they they give them like some sort of amphetamine and it looks like a crackhead web. You know what mm -hmm. I mean? But they give them like it's almost like they're creating these obscure creative patterns when you're giving giving them these these different like LSD is, is the one that comes to mind. Mm. And, I, you know, I, when you talk about language in psychedelics. There seems to be a rare affinity for poetry on some level. And maybe that is because we're describing the world in a different way. We're seeing things different. But I've noticed a few people that have been very successful at helping people integrate or in that field of, of integration or helping people with mental illness when they use poetry. And when I think of poetry, it's almost a better way to communicate. Like we've all probably had the situation where we said something really clever, or maybe some of us have written some poems and, and expressed that to someone we love and we get to see their face flush and their skin gets filled with goosebumps or maybe yours get filled with goosebumps when you read the poem. And like, that seems to be like a more rare form a more complete form of, of communication. And it's, it's interesting that we connect, we've spoken about the spoken word. We've talked a little bit about poetry. We've talked about creative language and ideas on these heightened states of awareness. And 
it just seems like so much good when it comes to the world of creativity is happening in these heightened states of awareness. It's, it's really exciting. I, I want to talk to everybody that you've mentioned, man. I, I hope that after we finish this, you can give me a laundry list of all these people that made me interested. <laughs> yeah, dude, I could definitely put you in contact with everybody in our lab. Kim Cooper's, Natasha Mason, Pablo. Uh, yeah, I, dude. Yeah, we. I, I really would love for you to talk to our, our lab. We're doing some fantastic things, and and I like how you sort of convey the conversation and direct the conversation. It's very nice. You do a very good job, by the way. Um, Thank you for that. So, so uh, yeah, no. So the the term that I wanted to say okay. was divergent thinking is, is oh, okay. what psychedelic okay. increases. It it, it well increases done. our divergent thinking. Yeah. yeah. How did you, did you, so what was the process like to recover that word? Did you have to yeah, like, so, think about it? <laughs> no, so, so, so I, I, that's a great question. So, uh, so there's, there's, uh, there's two different types. There's uh, divergent thinking, which is very um, creative ways. And there's convergent thinking, which is a very sort of descriptive way. Uh, you know, when we aren't on psychedelics, we sort of operate on this field of convergent thinking where it's a very practical very sort of like applicable to our reality and divergent thinking is sort of this disorganization and how i thought of that is i remember um a podcast that or a, um a presentation that kim uh, cooper's did i believe in belgium and uh i brought myself back to that and i was just looking at that presentation i was just i was like scrolling through that presentation trying to find when she talked about it and then i found it and i just sort of push play in my head and I'm like, okay, divergent thinking. That was it. <laughs> okay. So for me that like, there's a moment in the podcast, you wind it back. You're like, Oh man, I'm so sorry, Kim. And then for a minute she, you're like, oh, she's going to hate me. But now the fact that you just explained to her that you replayed the entire conference in your head, she's going to be like, yeah, dude, you are awesome. Yeah, totally. totally. She's going to like that. She's going to like that. Yeah. Shout out to Kim Cooper's and Natasha Mason yeah. and, uh, and uh, Gurn, Manesh Gurn, who's also a guy that we've been working with. Manesh Gurn, good guy. Yeah, it's. Yeah. I, I think yeah. there's some fascinating, and, and I'm so excited to see the the new ways in which you know these studies are are being performed. Is it is it mm. difficult to find funding to try to explore the different areas that people are excited about? So great question, um, <laughs> fantastic question. So when it comes to funding um so right now in this current point of the psychedelic renaissance is what people love to call it yeah, sure. is that we're 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 so focused on how psychedelics can help with things like you know anxiety depression alcoholism mm -hmm. addiction you know all, right. all this stuff P, uh, right. ptsd the, all this stuff so right now in this point we're so focused on how these substances can actually help and alleviate that so and why that that you know why well because the society that we're in is a very um, chaotic society and we're trying to find sort of a quick fix to right. solve this problem. We we're looking at we've tried Prozac, we've tried <laughs> religion, we've tried philosophy, we've tried strict political sure. regimes, and they've all sort of failed. So now we're like, okay, psychedelics that has to be it. The same substance that you know politicians were accusing people of being, you know, addicts at, now we're looking at that for the reason, you know, that are sort of plus. Um, but, uh, so, so what that's, what that entails is that almost all funding, almost all funding mm -hmm. goes towards how psychedelics have therapeutic potential and therapeutic benefits, how, um, you know, uh, LSD can help with, you know, depression or how dmt can help mm. with stroke victims or whatever you know it's 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 
we're so heavily focused on the therapeutic aspects of psychedelics that we aren't focused, at least financially, we aren't focused on the perceptual research of psychedelics. Why do we even trip at all? What's happening in the brain when we're tripping? I mean, almost the entirety of psychedelic funding is not only the beneficial properties of psychedelics, but even to take away the perceptual experience of psychedelics, yeah, which true. is like, what? You know, so so a lot of the funding that, that's available is not perceptual. And and of course, it just so happens that I'm a perceptual scientist. Love it. Looking at the perceptual ways in which psychedelics sort of augments this sort of process. And it sucks to try to get funding for research because, you know, if you cannot... If you bring a research design and you're like, this is going to give us a, a better understanding of why we trip in the brain, the investor, the sort of, you know, financial backer right. always says, okay, how can we, you know, how can we make this into a drug to help with depression or help with anxiety? And it's like, no, 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 we're, I'm just trying to figure out why we're tripping. Perhaps in the future, you know, we could, but let's figure out why we're tripping. And they're like, no. We don't care. We just want to, you know, make this drug cash out yep. and have a big payout. And it's like, no, 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 no. So, so with that said, I, Zeus, have been looking towards other ways to get funding. And I've been looking towards things like, you know, virtual reality companies and, and companies that are focused on gaming, mm. um, which is heavily into perception so that's that's where i'm looking for funding is companies that are outside of the psychedelic space but are focused on perception like virtual reality like gaming um you know so that that's where i'm that's who i'm talking to uh, and i gotta give a shout out to Subpack, uh which is a great company they they are also focused on perception and we're we've been talking for a couple weeks I think they may get on board with some great psychedelic research. So shout out to Subpack for uh, even considering my research as a topic of, of their investment. Yeah, they they sound like an incredible company, and I makes me the fact that they are on board with someone who's so forward thinking like yourself makes me want to investigate them even more. It makes me want to tell all my friends to investigate them. So <laughs> yeah. yeah, they're dope, man. They're really cool. Yeah, I um. What is like what is the relationship? Like it seems to me that sometimes, you know, if if we take Apple's new product where you strap on these goggles, it almost seems like they're trying to simulate a psychedelic trip. What is the relationship between psychedelics and gaming? That is <laughs> literally uh what I'm using in my research. Um so uh let's so virtual reality, you always hear about that, you know, virtual reality, VR. Uh, but there is this sort of bigger term okay. called extended reality um, mm. or um, XR. Okay. Um, and uh, extended reality is basically just an umbrella term to sort of put in everything like virtual reality, like augmented reality, mixed okay. reality, any other sort of versions of you know aug augmentation of reality is extended reality. And 
uh, about a few weeks, maybe three weeks ago, a company called HTC released this mm. uh, fantastic uh, headset called the HTC um, uh, HTC XR Elite, which is a fantastic headset that is an extended reality headset. Okay. And it is top of the game, wild stuff, even more impressive than Apple's announcement, to be honest with you. I, I and and so for, so we just got that headset in our lab about like a week ago, about a couple of weeks ago. And it is incredible. What am I doing with a you know VR slash XR headset and DMT? I wish I could tell you. Ah, me too. <laughs> but I'm under so many NDA agreements that I cannot go into it. But I will say this, that when it comes to psychedelics, like LSD, MDMA, they really augment areas of our reality, you know? Mm. Like, for example, you know, you take, you drop LSD and all of a sudden a uh, orange table is purple or it's like uh, rippling right. like an ocean or whatever, you know, or, or the walls are dripping you know but it's still an augmentation of our existing reality right but with dmt it's 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 wild your eyes can be open or closed and it doesn't sort of take away from this field of vision that's being presented to you and this field of vision doesn't even take the information from our own reality just presents it in front of us almost almost like a pharmacological virtualized reality that's that's all i'm gonna say that's all i'm gonna say oh man you know it it reminds me of the long period the, the long I'm not, i don't know if that's the right word there was a study a while back. I'm sure you're familiar with it. Maybe it was at King's or somewhere, but they were doing the IV drip of DMT for a prolonged state to become aware of not only the environment, but the entities there. And then you read Andrew Gilmore's book about mapping the territory of DMT. You know, it's, it makes my imagination run wild about what you guys are doing over there. It makes me really, really jealous. <laughs> So, yeah, I'm excited no, for you guys, though, man. Yeah. Well, I mean, look, it's it's. I mean, I yeah, it's it's. Honestly, I wake up every day and I'm like, oh my gosh, yeah. I can't believe I'm doing this every single day. Uh, but yeah, that study was from Imperial College London, okay. and uh, I believe the lead, I, I believe the, the 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 PI of that, I think it's Chris Timmerman, mm. uh, which is a fantastic scientist uh, from Imperial College. Shout out to Chris Timmerman. We we definitely hung out. Uh, before, but yeah, he's he's a great scientist, and yeah, they're yeah. they're looking at this prolonged state, or they call it extended state DMT. And extended uh, state. thank you, thank you. I couldn't yeah, believe yeah. the light for me. And uh, what I mean, I think the most fan, the most fantastic thing about that research is the fact that they found that in order for a DMT state to actually be 
prolonged and, and extended to sort of cross to sort of you know cross the threshold or whatever. Right. Okay. You have to give a bolus injection in the beginning and then prolong that. So what's a bolus injection? It's just a big injection of DMT, a big hit. The it, it's so dependent on a big huge um, injection or a big huge hit which is interesting in the yeah. pharmacological sense there are substances and and um, pharmaceuticals that also operate on the same principle of in order for this thing to be active you have to give a big injection first and then sort of prolong it whereas so for example um with something like LSD, you know, mm -hmm. you don't have to give a big inject, a big shot, a big sort of hit of LSD to have the effects. You just right. take a tab and you're feeling the effects. But specifically with DMT, you have to give that big bolus injection in the right in the beginning. And then, of course, Terrence McKenna, back in the day, he sort of had this figured out. He's like, look, man, in order for you to break through, you have to have three big hits. Yeah. And by the third hit, the like walls are going to be rippling, but you have to take that third hit. And Terrence McKenna was right. He he's he's right. You know, you you have to have a big hit in the beginning so that you could sort of have that prolonged state or that extended state. Yeah, it, it, there's so much fascinating research being done, and it's it's amazing to to think about. I um. I'm curious to think about when I think about gaming and I think about psychedelics, I think about the storyline of games. And I think a lot of those games are built on, you know, classic ideas like the hero's journey or maybe Nietzsche's the camel to the child, you know, but these, these things that are ingrained in us that, we understand like the call to adventure, refusing the call, the threshold guardian, and those can kind of be experienced in a game and you can get fulfilled in that way. And, but th those seem to be myths that are from the West, from the, from the, you know, the Greek and the Western traditions. I'm, and I, I've read some interesting mythologies from, native communities where they don't really have the same thoughts on trauma or fear or in their mythologies, the person that was the villain becomes a totem or maybe becomes a monument and they're still revered. I'm wondering, it's a two-part question. What is mythology and voodoo like? Is there mythology in voodoo? And are you able to use those sort of mythological structures to incorporate in some of the work you're doing now, whether it's gaming or maybe you use that sort of story to move your life forward? Uh, yeah, no, great uh, question. So uh, in voodoo, yeah, there there is, I would say, less mythology, more, I mean, hmm. No, there there is mythology in voodoo. You know, there there are certain. Uh, so I would say the definition of mythology would be a consistent okay. cast of characters that have influence over our reality, right? Mm -hmm. uh, for example, Roman mythology. You have you know the Roman Greek, you know the Roman gods, right. of course, Greek, 
So, and of course, you know, other mythologies. So yeah, a, a, a consistent cast of characters that have influence of our reality. And in Creo Voodoo, there is a consistent cast of characters, but these, this, they, they don't, they don't interact with our reality in sort of unseen ways, like how in sort of most mythologies you have, mm -hmm. you know, this crop didn't grow because um, Demeter was angry or something, you know, <laughs> the, you know, whatever. Um, but in Creole voodoo, these entities, these, you know, um, deities, they, they, they're actually brought forth in our reality through a conjuring of a person. Mm. And for, for example, um, uh, so let's say, for example, there's a, you know, there's sort of a, um, you know, um, domestic dispute that's uh, happening in a, a community, right? And uh, they're, you know, beefing or, you know, whatever you want to call it. And uh, they call in one of the town elders, right? And usually it's like an older guy uh, or a um, girl, you know, it doesn't matter. It's sort of gender, doesn't matter. So in order for this entity to be conjured, you have to have a setting mm -hmm. for this entity to okay. reside in. So there's this one entity that you uh, conjure where you have to have a top hat. You have to have a glass of like um, alcohol or some type of like um, spirit, you know, whatever. And you have to put it on a table. You have to have a feather that's on the chair. And if you don't have any of these things, then when the actual um, elder comes in, that entity won't be conjured into that person. And then let's say you do have all of these elements. You have the top hat, you have the class of like whiskey or whatever, and you have the feather yeah. and, the, and the table, they sit, they sit down on the feather, you know, whatever. And they sort of, you know, they have this conjuring and it's a very, physically demanding violent thing that you see you you like you know see a person contort themselves you're doing you're doing all, all this stuff and then this person who was a seemingly regular person before is talking in a very funny accent doing weird things saying wild stuff that's accepted by all because all people see that that person who walked into the door isn't that person anymore that person that we saw is gone and he or she has been replaced by a entity that only exists in this sort of spiritual world or whatever, but coming down to yeah. help us humans with the problem. So how does that translate to psychedelics? That's, that's the ultimate question. And that's, <laughs> or uh, gaming, you know? So, you know, psychedelics does this thing, and it's a very consistent thing. It, it allows us to be more susceptible to yeah. things, you know, um, you know, sort of more our, our suggestibility is increased, you know, um, ideas that were once thought of as like ridiculous before. All of a sudden, they're like, nah, I can see that, you know, or whatever, you know. Yeah. So. So when it comes, so here's the thing. So I envision a future 
where gaming gets to the point where we've gone past, you know, the improvement of graphics and, you know, Mm-hmm. Was, you know the uncanny ray valley. traced and oh uh, yeah we've, we've gone past the un, uh, the un, um, candy valley we, we've gone past that we, we've we have ultra realistic imagery whatever engine unreal eight by that time it's just <laughs> perfect right but i envision a future of psychedelics in which we get to that point we cross that uncanny valley but in order for our brains to fully immerse ourselves in whatever gaming world is, is being created, what, whatever virtualized experience is mm. being given, perhaps you have to increase that susceptibility with a pharmacological means, which could be that you have to take a dose of a psychedelic-like compound in order to prepare your brain to experience whatever <laughs> game you're playing. <laughs> i love it that sounds like so much fun <laughs> yeah i mean just imagine like playing like whatever on like lsd you know like uh legend of uh, zelda on like mushrooms like this that's amazing but um but yeah I, I i i foresee that element being incorporated in not only gaming but any immersive experience that we encounter um and, and also, wow. I want to say that, like, wow, you know? yeah, wow, I, I really it's the first that. time I have. This is the first time that I've put that together. Thank you for explaining it in that way, because I've never been able to see this thing that people talk about. But this is the first time I have. It was really well, really well put. Thank you. I cut you off, though. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. no you, I, I, that was it, basically. Yeah, that was it. It's fascinating to me. I, you know, I, I think that seeing it from that angle is, is almost. I can see the promise of it. I can see the beauty of it. And I, I couldn't see that before. So it's, this is, this, this part alone is really wild to me. It is wild. It is amazing to think about the potential of, of gaming or altered perception or living in another dimension in a weird sort of way is what's allowing you to do. If only every funder and financial investor can have your vision that that epiphany that you just had yeah i wish they would have that so they would say zeus here you go here's your funding let's make it happen let's increase you know eight subjects to 100 subjects here's the money let's make it happen if only they had your vision <laughs> well it's your it's 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 thank you for or, sharing yeah. it yeah. and and look i think that slow at first and then all at once right being able to translate vision into reality is not something a lot of people can do. But if I can, if I can get it, I think that the, the it's resonating, you know, but I, I don't think I would have got it unless you explained to me the idea of the voodoo mythology. Like, I think that that should be incorporated in the write-up right there. You know what I mean? Oh, wow. and the, yeah. Like I, I think it's a big part of it because when you were talking about the, the voodoo mythology and psychedelics and, all of a sudden, I started seeing like somatic therapy. You know, they talk about someone being a container. And that sounds a lot like what the person is that, that gets that sort of download or something like that. Like, you know, it's very, you can almost start to change that language around to be synonymous a little bit. And, and I think it's also important that people who want to see that vision have maybe had some really either traumatic experiences 
or some big psychedelic experiences, probably both would be better. But I think in high dose psychedelic experiences, people that have what are termed as breakthroughs or, you know, in, in my example, I remember, I'll tell you a funny story. Well, at least I think it's funny. I was, um, I, I was a UPS driver for a long time. And you have a lot of time, even though you're delivering packages, and you're talking to tons of people, you're by yourself all day long. So you have time to think about stuff. And I was, um, I had left work, I had left my house and I was on my way to work. I went to work, I grabbed my, my rig and I'm driving to my first stop and my phone starts blowing up, you know, and it's like, I look at it and it's my wife and I'm like, oh, I'll wait till I pull over. But she calls twice. And I'm like, that's the code. Okay. There's a problem. Yeah, yeah. What's up, love? And she's like, George, is there something you want to tell me? And I'm like, uh, Oof. I love Oof. you. You know what I'm like? <laughs> love you? And she's like, no. Is there something you're hiding or something? I'm like, no. Gorgeous, I love you. I got nothing to hide. I, we solved all that. You know what I mean? I love you. I got nothing to hide. I, yeah, I got yeah, nothing. Yeah. Why? And she's like, well, some people from like the FBI showed up at the door and they were really forceful and they're looking for you and you're in deep shit. And I was like, Oof. And I, like I, I'm thinking to myself, like, shut up! What the FBI? Get the hell out of here with that! What the, what I do? I'm a damn truck driver. I start thinking of things, and I'm like, man, I, I ordered like six copies of Technological Slavery from Ted Kaczynski. I wonder if yeah, that's yeah, what yeah. you know. I'm like, Dude, they don't care about that, yeah, like, yeah, 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 you know. Yeah. And then I'm like, bought a bunch of weed. I hmm, know, not that. Uh, and and as I'm, I'm, this is all happening in like a split second, and then my phone blows up and like it's this it's this other caller and i'm like okay and she's like they said that they're gonna call you and i was like oh i think they're calling right now so i hang up with my wife and i'm still wow. contemplating stuff phone's blowing up right and like i just i just go straight to voicemail blows up straight to voicemail blows up straight to voicemail and i'm like okay i guess i better answer this and i like i didn't really have anything to hide so i wasn't really mm. afraid to answer i was a little nervous to get that call mm. and so i pull over my truck and they're like Mr. Monty, I'm like, yes, this is George. This is agent so-and-so with FBI. I, have a, I just went to your house. I'm, I really need to talk to you. It's very important. And I'm like, what's this about? He's like, I, I, I prefer to tell you over the phone. In fact, I, I, you know what I'm like? Jesus Christ. Okay. All right. Yeah, you want to meet me? How about Saturday? He's like, no, no, today. How about I come to your work? And I'm like, that's a horrible idea. Don't come to my work. How about you meet me on my route? And they're like, okay, I'm going to be at this spot at this time. And so, you know, I, I'm nervous. I'm, I'm zooking out thinking like, I, okay, I didn't do anything. I got, I got nothing. Let's go talk to these guys. And so I, I meet them at the spot and these two guys show up, you know, and they jump out and they have like this black binder and they come up to me and they're like, Mr. Monte, I'm like, yeah. And they show me this black binder. And like, we would like you to look at all these pictures here and see if you notice any of these people. So I'm looking through the binder and I'm like, nope. Mm-mm. And I'm, I'm becoming painfully aware that they're just staring at me while I'm looking through wow. this binder, you know? And I'm like, okay, are they just looking at me? Like, I, you know, I don't know anybody in these binders. And so, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm aware, like really aware that they're just staring at me. So I hand them back the binder. I'm like, I don't know any of these people, man. I have no idea what you're talking about. And they're like, well, then maybe you can explain how this guy has your identification card. And I'm like, I started thinking for a minute and I go, Oh, you know what? I was pickpocketed at the mall like three months ago, man. And like oh. all the air just comes out of these guys and they're like, Oh, 
They're like, are you uh, sure? And I'm like, yeah, I'm sure. I'm like, you know what? You can get the you can get like the cam from Nordstrom's because the guy tried to buy a watch and I figured it out. So they have a cam on there. And so the reason I the, the reason that story is important is because that wow. weekend I came home and did like a giant dose of mushrooms. And it was weird, <laughs> you know what I mean? And so, but the experience of having like these FBI guys wanting me and thinking that I mm. was like this mastermind criminal, it was mm. something that I was stayed on my mind for a few days and I just, I really played with it. And then during that deep trip, I was like, wow, man, these guys thought that I was like this master criminal or something. And, it, but more than that, in their mind, I was. And then in, in that trip, I was like, why don't you be? You could be. They thought you were. You know what? They thought you were. Why can't you be? Why instead of being George the UPS driver, why don't you be George the master criminal? You Ooh. know, and this whole, yeah, dude, like this whole trip. And it, it was like a good one, man. Like time distorting, seeing myself. Yeah. Like, yeah. And then, and then, and then, the, then the idea came, what kind of crime would you do? Well, it wouldn't be Ooh. something dumb like that guy did. You know what? I'd probably... You don't have to think about this, but it would probably be some sort of white collar crime, some sort of Robin Hood style, mm -hmm. you know, and mm -hmm. I, I just mm -hmm. went in depth. And for like a good hour, I was this other person. And when I came out of that trip, like it yeah. changed the way I saw the world. I didn't become a master criminal, but I did bring back this ability to visualize myself. And when you and I spoke about visualizing how your brain can't tell the difference between something that happens and something you vividly imagine. And for me, like I, it was, it was one of those ones where you bring something back and I was like, holy shit, I, I could be something totally different than I am. And I could do it today. I could start it today. And so I think the reason, like I, I started bringing up that point is that, you know, you, you can begin to have if once you have that experience of seeing yourself differently, that's the experience that, that the game, the thing, the, the relationship between psychedelics and the game could do for people. But I think it's an experience that someone that wanted to be an investor should have knowledge of because that's mm -hmm. the same time, like what you're doing mm -hmm. provides people with that kind of transformative experience that could mm -hmm. fundamentally change their life. It could change mental illness. It could change everything and it could gamify it. Like mm -hmm. it's, it's, what you're doing is magical. And that, like, that's what I see the vision of it there. But thanks for letting me share that story, man. Great story, man. Uh, great story. That sounds sounds like an amazing experience. I bet you were super relieved too whenever. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was wow. a trip, man. It was bet, a trip. It sounds like it. Did, yeah. Did your, uh, did your uh, wife believe you when you said that? Like, did she believe you or did she still think that you were up to something? Like no, when she you believed said what me. happened. Okay. Yeah, because she's like, and then I called her back afterwards and, and she's like, dude, what happened? Why is the FBI coming here? Like, yeah. you know, and I'm like, dude, they got the wrong guy. And she's like, <laughs> you know, there was like this moment of like, they got the wrong guy. Obviously, they got the wrong guy, but why but why did, how do they know they're the wrong guy? And so for the, there was this, and that played a part in it too. It was like even my mm. wife for a minute thought I was like this different person. Yeah. You know, and it and yeah. and, and, and any sort of transform be it a mystical experience be it a psychedelic experience having everyone around you look at you different and sometimes that's the case of paranoia too right like hey everyone thinks i'm this person so people freak out sometimes but it's mm -hmm. those are all connected i think right there there's something to be said about that kind of transformation that happens and 
it would be interesting to see what's happening in the brain when that happens. Mm. Yeah, I totally agree. And uh, it's, it's something look, I mean, it's, it's something that I'm actively researching. I'm, I'm researching uh, the perception, visual perception uh, mm -hmm. while on DMT. I'm using FNIRS, functional near infrared spectroscopy, which is you, it's, uh, it's basically using the power of light to look at the brain and brain activity, uh, which is very clever way of how they, they do it. It's incredible. Um, and, and I'm also looking at people that are in VR and I'm basically yeah. giving people DMT and putting them inside VR. And looking at the, the brains. Okay, so does the are, are there similar parts of the brain that are lighting up in those two experiences? Yeah, so I would say so. I'm focused uh, almost entirely on the visual cortex, you know, okay. like vision, basically. And, and the reason why is because uh, with DMT and of course with VR, the single sort of distinct factor is vision like with mm -hmm. dmt you're having a visual trip yeah uh with you know vr experience obviously it's very visual yeah there's some um, auditory components to it yeah mm. but i also want to want to say that like i also want to throw this too you know like yeah what okay so since i'm focused on vision you know i have to look at the inverse of that and for example, a person that's congenitally blind, right, is a person that was born without vision. Mm. A person that has gone their entire lives never experiencing any visual information. And these people exist. They're everywhere. They're, you know, they're, they're fantastic people, too. But what happens when a person that was born blind does psychedelics, like LSD? Do they have a visual experience and the answer is they don't but they have auditory experiences and they have tactile which are a touching experiences and there's a great case report of a guy that was born blind he took a really big hit of LSD at a party he was with friends and you know how when you take LSD, you always there's this sort of thing that happens where you like look at a person's face or you look at your mm -hmm. own face and you see your face melt and drip. Sure. And you're like, oh my gosh, you know, it's a very <laughs> common thing, you know. Yeah, yeah. So this person that was blind, born blind, he was on LSD, he was at a party, you know, with his friends, and he walked up to one of his friends and how blind people sort of, you know, uh, sort of discern details as they touch it, right? They touch, sure. you know, things like, eye, you know, fate in the hands and they see a person's this size or healthy, whatever. But they also touch faces as well to mm -hmm. see the detail, the fine details of a person's face. And this person that was born blind, when he touched his friend's face, he felt that his friend's face was melting. Whoa. He felt that the actual face was like like falling down and he was like sort of rearranging the details of the face. The same experience that you would get visually, he had that, but it was tactile. It was through touch. Amazing, right? Unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. So so what is that what does that say? That that says that 
that says that says a lot. That says way too much to even uh, talk about here. But it, it says that the it's it, it says a lot. But I think particularly it tells us that the LSD experience, at least, well, really all the the sort of experiences of all psychedelics, but specifically this LSD experience, there are things that are unifying. Whereas you can you can uh, have an entire sensory modality removed like vision mm -hmm. and still have an LSD experience that has the same properties, the same attributes as a person with vision. So. Wow. There's, that's such an amazing field or that's such an amazing area to begin to become curious about is what is that experience like for someone who doesn't have that particular sense, you know, or that, or that ability and, and, and how much relevant information we can, it, maybe you could learn more about the sense of vision from someone who's never seen like, Oh, are you like, that's crazy, right? Like it's beautiful in so many ways. Yes. And, and that's what I'm talking about is that remember that that um, sort of um, example that I gave to you earlier with the person that was looking at this, this sort of brain activity and they're like, they just put yeah. it away because it's like, whatever. We yeah. can learn a lot from vision from the lack thereof of vision. Mm -hmm. And that's something that we should really look at, especially when it comes to psychedelic augmentations of our brain and how people experience a trip. And that's the one great thing about psychedelics is, yeah, it's going to lead to, you know, therapeutic benefits and all this stuff, but it's going to help us understand the brain better mm -hmm. based on how sort of chaotic the brain, you know, goes to whenever we're on psychedelics. What What's important? What isn't important? What happens when we do this, when we do that? So we'll, and if we can understand our brain better, then, I mean, I mean, it's the, the potential is unlimited. We can improve how we organize thoughts and memory and, and, and temperability and, and extensions of reality and all this is stuff that we can't even stuff that we aren't sophisticated enough to even understand will unravel from our understanding of the brain and psychedelics. Yeah. And see, this is like this. I think you and your team and a handful of other people are like 10 steps ahead of the current understanding. Like I, if, if we look at the way in which cannabis was rolled out in a way to achieve monetary gains or, or in a way to, you know, privatize profits, if we look at cannabis that way, it had the exact opposite effect. It just drove prices into the ground. And I think you can make the same case for a lot of the psychedelic companies that are coming out now and trying to become, you know, like the the the, the micropreneur. Dennis Walker does some really funny that videos too. Funny, that guy's so awesome. So but he, he he hits it on the head. Like, okay, you know, if you're using it to try and create profits to see the future, it's probably not going to work. But you know, I think that what does work and what the next people that want to invest in it are going to do is they are going to see 
that the the way forward is sort of optimization instead of healing. You know, healing is great and healing is something that you know, it can be done and there's maybe maybe they're barking up the wrong tree. Maybe the if the real fortunes want to be made, they're made in discovering modalities of of understanding that we haven't yet figured out and Maybe, I, I don't know why that's so hard for people to invest in. Like, look, here's a field that's not – it's a wide-open field, man. There's no, It's a blue ocean strategy. <laughs> you know, yeah, I, I totally agree. And you have to ask yourself and, and ask – heck, man, you could ask other people. Yeah. Um, why did you take psychedelics? Your first ever LSU trip, was it to help your anxiety or was it to – trip out and see some wild yeah, stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, come yeah. on. Like we, we cannot forget this very, you know, this complete, um, uh, sort of, um, uh, I don't know what I'm saying. Uh, I'm, I'm, at a, I'm at a loss of words. I'm um, origin of psychedelics, this sort yeah. of innate origin that we all, almost all of us began our pursuit on psychedelics for, the perceptual right. aspects of psychedelics, not for the therapeutical aspects. The first time I did shrooms, I like wasn't thinking, oh, I got to fix my depression. It was Friday <laughs> night. I'm in my friend's basement. And I'm like, bro, <laughs> I want to do these shrooms because I want to do some wild stuff. We that's that's how we first began, but yeah. somehow we've sort of forgotten or like lost that sort of this, you know, sort of pioneering perceptual spirit that we all had mm. when we first got into psychedelics and i am the person that's saying to the rest of the world no bro <laughs> let's remember why we all got into psychedelics for the first time and that is for the perceptual aspects of the substance yeah, I think it. Uh, I think it's in some ways it's been conditioned out of us. Like, oh, you guys gonna use this stuff? Can you use it for this? You mm. know what I mean? It, it almost seems like we're weaponizing fragility in a way. Like, you know what I mean by that? Like, everybody's got a trauma and everybody's fragile. And like, hey, we're gonna use this at work for production because you got these problems. And like, it, it's, it's a, it's a. I want to. It's, I would say, a symptom of the sickness, but it's probably better to say it's a direct reflection of the people who are trying to privatize it or pro profitize it. You know, and I, mm. I think it speaks to the larger question of medicine. Like, why are we studying sick people? Like, maybe we mm. should be studying what is possible. Because if you can study the brain that is performing on this level, that is imagining these things, won't the answers to these things down here become obvious instead of just you know, if you focus on if, if if it's true that you you what you focus on you feel, we're spending a lot of time focusing on problems and not a whole lot of time on solutions, man. Man, I and <laughs> the reason why we are spending so much time scientifically on focusing on problems is because focusing on problems is where the cash is at. Mm. That's that's how you get your funding, and 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 that's how you get the financial backing of companies because people have because because it's going to sound crazy to say this but it's true yeah the sort of pioneering spirit of psychedelics is, is very important in science but what's really what's really backing science it's going to what's backing psychedelic science at, at least it's going to sound wild. Well, i'm going to say this 
but it's capitalism mm. is the primary driver of psychedelic research. And that means that with capitalism, we do things like build products, things, we sell things to people to fix other things. Mm. That is the sort of basis of capitalism. And that's where the psychedelic renaissance is, is we're, it's a very capitalistic lens right. of these psychedelics. Oh, you use these when you were a kid to trip in your friend's uh, living room. Okay. Well, let's just take that aspect out of it. Let's take the, let's take the trip out of it. And let's just focus on how these psychedelics can help with depression because that is the product that can be sold and that's going to solve this issue of people being depressed. But that is so unfortunate. And you brought up something that was tremendously disturbing in a good way. <laughs> awesome. You said that like how people are doing stuff like you know, doing things like um, LSD to be more productive at work. <laughs> it's so disturbing, right? It's so disturbing. <laughs> Just imagine, like, the entire psychedelic experience has been reduced to how these substances can help yeah. us be productive because it's basically, you know, pushed with a capitalistic engine, and that's mm -hmm. where we are right now. So I, I, I'm so excited we're talking about this because – and it, it, to me, one of the one of the things I really love about this podcast is getting to talk to people and then having new ideas emerge or getting to see patterns. And as as we've been talking, like I feel like we've been building to this, and this thing just kind of exploded in my mind. And it's this psychedelics is currently backed by capitalism today, the way computers were backed by capitalism before Apple came out. Like there's no visionary yet. There's no one that has, you know maybe it was brought up in voodoo and is now exploding onto the scene. There's no Steve jobs. There's no real person yet that I said, we're going to, we're going to create this commercial where all these IBM guys just fall off a cliff. Cause it's stupid, <laughs> you know, but, I, but I can see, I can see this new thing beginning to emerge where I could see a similar commercial. And this might be a sick commercial for a new gaming company is to have all like these old guys just falling off a cliff the way the first <laughs> Apple commercial came out. You know what I mean? It's like, it would be an homage to creation in a weird sort of way, just cyclical in a, in a, you know, in a, a helical moving up model, which is super funny to me, <laughs> but you know, and, and maybe, there's another great book that adds to what I'm saying here. And it's called The Fourth Turning. And in that book, they talk about generational trauma. They talk about the way in which different generations move through that helical pattern. And it seems to me that the capitalism we are kind of having today is a boomer capitalism. It seems that what we're struggling with in the, today's world, be it Ukraine or you know, high priority fossil fuel extraction or it seems that we're struggling under the weight of antiquated ideas. And that is a direct reflection of the boomer generation dying. And what I mean by that is if you look at the boomers, the Xers, the millennials, if you just look at us all as one body, a giant portion of our body is dying. And it's very difficult when anything in your body begins to die. There's unrealized dreams. There is, you know, body parts that don't work anymore. And, I think that as this 
part of us begins to embrace the mortality experience, this new part of us is beginning to express itself. It's like the torch is being passed. And when I, when I talk to you and you have these ideas about like, hey, wouldn't it be great if we studied medicine this way? Hey, what if we had this spark? Hey, you know why everybody did this in the beginning? It's like, this is what is emerging. You know, there's a great quote that I, that I say sometimes and it says, and the day came when the risk to remain tight in a bud was more painful than the risk it took to blossom. And I think mm. that that is what we're beginning to see is that the risk to stay here, the risk to have this form of capitalism, the risk to put all of our money into mental health and just cringe and hope we can patent this thing. Like it doesn't work. And like they, it's becoming too painful where you have to blossom into new areas. And that's the blue ocean strategy. That's the new field. And like, that's what I see after having this conversation with you after having this talk and, Going back and remembering your threads the same way you remembered your friends conference, like I'm mm. seeing these things emerge. Like, and it's just it gets, it gets clearer and clearer. It makes me so stoked for the future because I think that if you can speak something into the existence and the conversations you have with your team, the other people, for some reason it seems that Europe, the Netherlands, and the different colleges over there. You, know, you have Denver and Oregon and Canada on it just seems to be on another level right now with the psychedelic experience, Jamaica. But there's these really hotbeds that are beginning to reshape the patterns that we have been so accustomed to. And I don't know, it's kind of a shot out the back door. But what do you think? Yeah, man. So, uh, and yeah, I, I, I like love that, 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 um, that sort of breakdown of yeah. the body sort of right pushing away the old the sort of um atrophied part and sort of sure. it's Re very very nice death and rebirth thank you yeah um so when it comes to these sort of hot beds of psychedelic science i do have to say that um when it comes to actual human research of psychedelics that's very mm -hmm. difficult to do mm. in other places of the planet which is the reason why we have so much research okay. on things like you know rats and like mice um that you really don't have a lot of human research the really the only consistent human research that you have in psychedelics is here magic university in uh, holland university of zurich in switzerland mm -hmm. and imperial college in uh, mm -hmm. england london so and when it comes to perceptual scientists or perceptual science in psychedelics there's really only two people that are doing perceptual psychedelic science it's myself and um Katrin Preeler at the University of Zurich and I I've been talking to Katrin Preeler for years and she I believe Katrin Preeler is is top 10 scientists on the planet when it comes to psychedelics we'll actually be hanging out in uh, Denver um and, and I'll, I'll see if I can get a picture because, uh, you know, just for the sort of um, history books. Right. Yeah. Uh, but but uh, yeah. So so. And, and why would I why would a guy from California come all the way out here? That's the ultimate question. Well, in America, as I've said before, the sort of whole um, the sort of whole focus on psychedelic research is how psychedelics can be beneficial. Whereas here in Europe, we have a little better, wider latitude to look at things like creativity, 
-hmm. or look at things like perception, which isn't, these aren't sort of um, topics in America because America is so focused on the pharmaceutical right. constructs of how these things can help out. Whereas here in Europe, I mean, perhaps it's because Europe has a sort of um, longer history and they've sort of figured out a lot of stuff that America right. hasn't, but they're, they're just like, Hey man, if you want to, you know, give people DMT and put them inside VR, <laughs> have be my guess. And there's like, it, it's, it's just being here in Holland and of course in Switzerland, but, but uh, speaking for a person that's from California coming out here, you can really, really feel this sort of attitude of, of, of like, of like relaxed, ideas on life mm. and on like for for example here you know like i said human research one of i think only three places on the planet that consistently do human research with psychedelics we've been doing it since 1982 with cannabis wow driving in cannabis 1982 but just overall like out here things operate differently there's like coffee shops everywhere where right. you can right you know post up with your laptop have a joint and do your thing there's also you know shops where you could buy just shrooms you could just walk into a place buy truffles buy shrooms you know and just walk out of it without any sort of thing you know there's even like delivery services where you can order whatever substance you want lsd mdma amphetamines whatever and it gets sent to you within 24 hours <laughs> deliver to your doorstep there is there are things like you know um uh uh you know the red light district um right legalized sex work which is something that's important too you know and and there's even things like assisted deaths like mm -hmm. there's only two places on the planet that that actually have assisted deaths which is the option to end your own life if you've come to the point in your life in which you want it to end that only exists here and i believe in belgium mm. or maybe switzerland i think it's here in switzerland actually uh or maybe here's some belgium in anyways there's few places on the planet that have this so it's the attitude of life here that pushed me to relocate myself from los angeles to maastricht in holland and i i wake up every day and i'm blown away that i even have the opportunity to conduct this research. It's really, really cool stuff. Man, I think you just inspired a thousand people to listen to this to try to get on the get on the uh the train or get on the plane or get on both of them and end up over there. It's so awesome. I'm glad you found the the fortitude and the courage to take that chance to do it. I what was there was there ever a question? I mean, were you ever like felt like you were held there did you have some ideas like i don't know it's kind of far away or was it just like this is the one i'm doing it i mean it, look man I, it's something that wasn't easy to get here yeah, um sure in the sense that you know you first off in, in order to get to be a phd candidate you know there's they get thousands of applications from across the world every single like month or whatever basically so you have to stand out Sure. And you have to show that you're able to do this research, show that you are, you understand science. So it was difficult to get to the point to even have a conversation with like Kim Cooper's Jan 
Rainmakers, which are the top people in psychedelic science. They've been doing it for a very long time. So to even have that conversation was difficult, you know, to, to get them. Right. And it, it took a lot of emails, lots of calling this person, that person to just assemble a conversation. But then once you get to the conversation, once you get to the actual Zoom call, you have to, you're, you aren't talking to like your friend <laughs> right, about right. psychedelics. You're talking to the top scientist right. about psychedelics. And, and, and you have to show that you belong in the same department yep. as them. You know, so in, in it, look, man, I, it, it wasn't like I pushed a button and they're like, yes, I, I did tons of calls, tons. I, I think I counted like 12 total Zoom uh, conference calls with other scientists, with Kim, with Jan, with Patina. Mm -hmm. I even did like presentations about my ideas, about overall science, about um, imaging, about the brain, mm -hmm. about hemodynamics, which is how blood in the brain travels like all of this <laughs> stuff in order for them to say you know what zeus you belong at our lab and that was so but i got i gotta say this though to everybody yeah. that is trying to you know get to that point right. or get to a point yes. where you want to be a part of the psychedelic scene i gotta say man that even though the odds were tremendously against me, at every single step, I believed almost to a sense of delusion. Nice. Yes. That I was going to get it. Mm -hmm. And you have to have this belief in yourself that's so strong that it's almost to the point of delusion where you have to tell yourself consistently that don't hope to get to the point, but tell yourself you belong there. You are there. You belong there. The, the only thing that you have to do is show people that you are in fact on par with them and on their level. That's all you have to do. So, but that belief in yourself for some is so hard because in you know, yeah. Western society in all society, you're, you're so you're, you're told to be humble, like to be <laughs> humble. And yes, you have to be humble for sure. But if you want something, you have to believe that you're already there. You have to have this delusional self sense of yourself. And perhaps I acquired that from doing a lot of LSD. I have no idea. But that is a that's mm. an absolute attribute that you have to have in order to get to the next step and whatever you want to do that's it yeah bravo well said it's you know if you don't have the belief in yourself why would anybody believe you mm. that's you know it's so important yeah and it's it is it's hard because you do you know, an unrealistic belief in yourself is sometimes an incredibly powerful thing, regardless, and especially when people around you are are telling you you're not. You know, it's I, I agree one hundred percent. I it's it's hard to be humble when you're the best. 
I will take that. I will take that. <laughs> I know. I I I I, I share. I, I think I share that with you in a lot of ways. I am. But so as we're talking about the way in which science is done, and we're talking about rat, rats and stuff, how accurate? I guess I have a, I have a two part rat question, and my mm -hmm, sure. two part rat question is. How reliable is a rat head twitch? Mm. You know, number one. <laughs> and number two, I was talking to a young woman from, I was talking to this young woman and she had mentioned to me that prior to her deciding to change the area she was studying, she was working in a lab where she was trying to change the conditioning of rats to PTSD. And she explained the experiment this way. The experiment was first off, you breed a certain set of mice. And if they don't, the ones that fit the parameters, certain age, certain weight, use those. The other ones, you kill them. And then once you have the rats that you need, you're going to shock them and electrocute them, play a tone, almost like a Pavlovian conditioning. And you shock them, tone, shock them, tone, until you no longer need to shock them. You just play the tone and they cringe up that way. Once you've done that, now you can begin to try and disassociate the tone from the shocking behavior. Mm -hmm. And she said that it was such a, you know, incredibly horrific experience to do science that way mm -hmm. that she decided to change. Like, what am I doing? And the mm -hmm. question, the question I bring that up. So that the second question is, mm -hmm. can we really get good, reliable, science that can change things in a positive way by building a foundation of horrific science like that. Mm, so the first mm. question is rat head twitch. The second is are immoral experiments giving us immoral answers like SSRIs and stuff like that. Mm. Yeah, no, I mean, th those are definitely, that's definitely a concerning thing. And it's something that I think about and just for everybody out there, I'm actually vegan. Uh, I've been vegan for about 10 years and I also have conducted animal research. Um, and, uh, I, I remember one time I was, a, uh, <laughs> here was a, this is a very traumatic time in my, sure. so when I was an undergrad, I think I was a junior and we had this really cool study where we were looking at, uh, rats and their spatial perception whenever a part of their brain gets like, you know, taken out, not taken out, but sort of reduced. Mm -hmm. And in order to make this happen, you have to, in, in order to give the injections to the rats, you have to put them under with lidocaine, basically, mm. which is, you know, and of course, to do that, you have to take the rat, you take them from their little cage or their little sort of box, you put them down, and you put the lidocaine inside this like little table, you put a um, orb on top of them, and then this lidocaine, or uh, um, Thorazine, sorry, this um, Thorazine mm. sort of, um, goes out and it sort of you know makes them fall asleep and then you inject lidocaine in the left or the right cheek and then that sort of dulls their perception and then you put them to the mid but one time i gave a rat too much thorazine and i'm not i'm not even making this up man i was so concerned about this rat's like safety and this rat's life that he wouldn't wake up so i was giving the rat cpr with my with my two th <laughs> with my two fingers giving this rat cpr and I was panicking, bro. I was panicking. Not that, like, because rats die all the time, you know? It, right? it, that just happens. Every single animal study that uses psychedelics and rats, after the study, all the rats are killed. Right. That's just a fact. But in this incident, I was so concerned 
about a mistake that I made that caused a death. But I was giving the rat CPR and then, you know, the rat comes back to life and I was, you know, but this one thing that, that is, is concerning. Yeah. Animals. And also, you know, this is sort of a, a, a sort of secret that you don't really hear about in uh, science is that in every university, every single one where the, every across the entire planet where you do animal research, the animal laboratory is always hidden. Mm. Always. Every mm, single university, it's always hidden. The actual building is hidden. Um, and not only hidden, but if you do get access to it, it's hard to get inside of the building. You have to have a access code. You have to have type of thing. You have to do all this stuff. But the buildings are always hidden. And the reason why they're hidden is because, yeah, it is a sort of dark mark on science that <laughs> we're breeding very specific rats to put them into rigorous experiments and ultimately kill them. But how is that any different from a person eating a burger at Burger King or mm. a person eating chicken at Chick-fil-A? I mean, really, you would think that actually having a rat go through an experiment and for science to understand something that we didn't do it or that, that we didn't understand is actually better than a cow dying because somebody wanted to have a late night snack because they were too stoned. Like it's almost better to have their deaths go towards science than their deaths goes, goes towards, you know, somebody's plate of food. So I'm going to get back to the animal research. Yeah. How can that translate to psychedelic science? And, and so you brought up a, a, a head twitch. Now, for people that don't understand what that is, a head twitch is how scientists um, assess the, the sort of subjective or the trip of mm. a substance when a animal takes it, when a rat or a, uh, you know, a rodent takes it. We, we see this head twitch that happens. It's like, and, and it's like, okay, the rat's tripping, you know, now yeah. it's time to do whatever. But the question is, do we have... Do um you know so if rats head twitch do humans head twitch, and it's an it's a question that I was talking to Rob McCarthy Harris a few months ago about it, and he's like he brought that that question he's like do we have evidence that humans have head twitches, and right now we don't, which doesn't say that that isn't that <laughs> human you know that rats but right. it's just that we don't have that evidence that right. humans do a head a head twitch. But going a little bit deeper into psychedelics, we the reason why we you know use rats and like rodents is because we can do things to them that we can't do to humans. We could right. sort of block Cut entire right. systems and entire parts of the brain and have their you know block you know serotonin receptors and all these other receptors that we can't do it because we can't get the ethical approval to you know, turn up a person's dorsal medial hypothalamus or whatever. That's ridiculous. But we can do it with animals. Mm -hmm. But the re the here's the weird thing. This is where I think it gets really weird. So we do things. We don't even have to give rats placebo. Really. I mean, we really don't. Because the rat... Yeah. Or the rodent doesn't really have an expectation. It's just there. It's doing something. It's just like 
finding food. It has a purpose. It has a task. It, it's doing something. And we're recording the uh, data and we're seeing the rat or the rodent go to this point, go to that point. And we just take that science for what it is. But, and we say that by doing so, we sort of take out this thing called expectancy effect, which with um, humans, if you give a person LSD, they expect that something's going to happen. You know, it's hard to have a double, um, you know, mm -hmm. a double blind study because it's like, it's, it's <laughs> difficult. It's, you know, what are you going to do? But with rats, it's different, right? With rodents, it's different because they're just trying to get the piece of cheese or the treat or whatever, you know, or not get shocked. Yeah. But how, we, how do we perhaps, and this is, this is a very hypothetical thing, what if rodents have a culture in which they understand that they are going to be augmented with psychedelics. And what if they have an expectancy effect? We don't really know that. So we believe that rodents are born. We, we like breathe them and there's very specific um, genotype and this and that. And it's like, okay, this is the type four, six, five rat, right? Mm -hmm. But what if, and we keep the rats in this huge sort of area with other rats and everything and rodents and everything. But what if, and I mean, this is hypothetical, what if these like rodents are talking to each other, communicating, saying, hey, you know, I had this one study and I was tripping out, but I got, I got cheese at, at the end or I had this or I had that. <laughs> What if there's some type of like rodent communication happening while where we store all these rodents that they're just talking to each other through ways that we aren't sophisticated enough to understand. And they're just sharing uh, data, which is, which is increasing an in expectancy effect. Or they're saying, Hey, you know, when you uh, get out there, you have to take a right and then a left or else you get shot. So like, remember that. And then we take this and we're like, Oh, well the rat took a right and the left. So that means that this, this, and that. But what if they're just talking to each other? What if there's, an actual communication happening with these rodents. We do not know that. We do not. We have no idea. So, I think that's something that we should really look at uh, if we knew how to look at it. Yeah, I think that there's some kind of evidence for that. Like, if if you look at the person who, like, no one could run a four minute mile, and then one guy mm -hmm. does it, and then everybody else can. You mm -hmm. know, and I, I think there was a study done. I, I this could be a story that I read, but there was this story that and i don't know if this is true i think this is true but it might not be so just take you I, 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 I think i already know what you're gonna say but go on it's it's this these anthropologists were on these islands and then there was this monkey that was cracking a coconut or something on one that they went to all these islands and they all had these behaviors and they documented each island for a month and by the time they got to the third island they noticed some abnormal behavior by one monkey by the time they got back to the first island, everybody on the first island was doing it. And they they came to this idea or this theory that like, hey, there's a form of communication happening between the species that we don't understand. And it sounds similar to what could be happening theoretically between the mice and the lab. Is that the one you were thinking of? Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, and Is that so a real study? Like, 
So I'm not sure if that's a real study, okay. but the theory, <laughs> okay. but no, it, 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 it could, it could be though. It could be though. But uh, the, the theory from that, uh, from that possible study is from this guy named Rupert Sheldrick. Okay. Morphic fields. Mor morphic resonance. Mm, yes. Okay. Yeah. And, and he, so this research, and I had the opportunity to actually talk with him. It was fantastic oh, to talk about this. His but, kid's uh, got a new book out. Oh, nice. Oh, nice. Very cool. Um, but he believes that, uh, let's say, for example, there's a brand new crossword puzzle that drops and it just in the thousands of people have it. And there's like one section that somebody can't figure like we all can't figure it out. You know, like right. what's this 14 letter word for whatever, you know, and then one person figures it out and then. Everyone else figures it out after right. that person figures it out. He believed, Rupert Sheldrake believed that that is because there's some globular or globular is what he said, consciousness or cosmic consciousness is what spiritual people mm. say, but a global consciousness that, that, that we're all connected to. And that when one person finds something out, then it spreads like wildfire and then everybody figures this out um we do not have evidence that that is the case uh and i'm not saying that we won't have evidence mm -hmm. in the future but we from the research that we've done that approaches this topic we do not have data that shows that that is a thing um, but it's a fantastic theory and he's he's a very interesting guy this rupert sheldrake is that the yeah. same as like the non-locality for mind? Like there's an aspect of mind that's like, is that similar to that? Yeah. So that's, that is also very uh, similar to, to that. Um, very, very similar. I, I think the most, and that's a cool sort of consciousness um, right. thing. Um, but I would say the most fascinating theory about consciousness that F one percent of it were true it would change how we perceive reality for the rest of time only one percent okay and awesome. the theory is called orc or theory um o-r-c-h space o-r orc or theory and right now it's it's at a point where we cannot falsify it only because we don't have the instrumentation to get that precise into the brain to discover if it's true or not. And it's a very complex theory, but I'm going to, I'll give you a very yeah, sort of, please do my sort of breakdown. Okay. So, so there's like, so just overall, right. There's, there's about three different um theories of consciousness, right? There is one theory that says that uh, consciousness is something, and you got to follow me on this because this is, this is very well <laughs> stuff. Uh, the first theory is that the element of being, of conscious, of, of, of experiencing reality was from an incident that happened long ago. In time, if time were sort of this um, line, it happened a long mm -hmm. time ago, and that our current consciousness is a very is a 
reverberation of that incident mm, of, okay. of that particular event. Some people would say it's the big bang, you know, that's that incident. Mm -hmm. Other people would say it's other things, but it, it's something that happened a long time ago. There's this other theory that says consciousness is a, a, it's, 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 it's a sort of, um, um, dimensional thing. It's a, it's, it's a dimensional thing where, um, our consciousness is dependent on the current dimension that we're in. And we perceive things because we're sort of locked into this dimension. But if you go to other dimensions, then you will see a clearer picture mm -hmm. of whatever this thing is called consciousness is. We, we do, we, but that's something that how are you going to do? How are you going to figure it out? There's a third theory that states biologically consciousness is not necessarily unique, but it's being orchestrated through our biology from something else. Almost like how you can have a remote control and use this remote control hmm. to control the car or whatever. But how do you find that out? So the idea or, or theory is orchestrated, um, uh, uh, orchestrated uh, reality, basically. It, it, it's, it's, and what does that mean? It means that deep in our brain, Deep, 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 beyond receptors, beyond, you know, brain cells, there's these little things, microtubules, mm. and there are plenty of them. I think trillions of them, microtubules. We just found out that these things exist, right? But they exist in a very binary state, on, off, on, off, on, off, on, off, and they go on and off billions of times over the course of a person's like day, basically. You know? mm. And this binary state operates how the binary state of a computer operates. And the belief is that the reason why humans are able to give birth to things like a computer is because we're really replicating our own biology. Mm. We're actually serving as the creator of our own creation. And it's called orc or theory. I, and, that, and that is just the top of the surface. I can't even get too deep into it. But <laughs> if anyone watches this, check out orc or theory. Some people say it's BS. Some people say that we can't prove that it's BS. Other people are like, this is wild. So I'm in the camp of like, this is wild stuff. This is it. So it's interesting. And it psychedelics, is. yeah. And psychedelics obviously does something to that process. I'm not going to get into it, but check it out. Yeah, it's. I think uh, Marshall McLuhan would say that human beings are the sex organs of the machines, right? Mm. <laughs> mm. Kind of backs it up right there. Mm. I like that. I like that. Yeah, That's yeah, great. it's fascinating. Well, Zeus, yeah. this is fascinating, man. I this conversation coming into this, 
we kind of we kind of set it up quickly, but man, two and a half hours just flew by like that. I I feel like we could talk even longer, man. I this is really really fun, and I really enjoyed the way in which you told stories. You explained some very complicated stuff. You made it fun, and beyond that, like I, it, it I I think, I think I learned a lot, man. Thank you. <laughs> Hey man, thank you for having me on. Uh, yeah, <clears throat> and yeah, I I really don't do a lot of podcasts, um, and the reason why I don't do a lot of podcasts is because the podcast presenter or host really doesn't do their research, or they they really don't they they you know. But you do your research, so it's it's fantastic. I looked at all of your other stuff, and I'm like, okay, this dude, I'm definitely gonna get on his podcast because he. It's, it seems like a good conversation, and it was a good conversation. So you did a fantastic job. I got to give you props as well. And for everybody watching this, if you are entertained, it's because of this guy right there. Right? Guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, it's 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 really fun, and I, I I think that anytime two people sit down and are fascinated by a topic, they can really provide a lot of value for people. But more than that, they can inspire someone like a young Zeus or a young George may latch onto one of the things we said. And if we accomplish that, man, that's a home run right there. That's like the first guy playing baseball that does LSD. What was that guy's name again? <laughs> Doc Ellis, <laughs> 1970, go, June 12th, Pittsburgh Pirates versus the San Diego Padres. He, that's he, a fascinating, he, yeah. Fascinating story, man. I, I wrote a story about that on Double Blind. Uh, the 53rd anniversary happened uh, three days ago. Uh, you got time to tell that story? What, what's that? Sorry. Do you have time to tell that a little bit? Yeah, about so that of course. Okay. Yeah. One of my favorite. So Doc Ellis was a, a fantastic baseball player. Uh, even beyond just his this fantastic story, he's a great guy when it comes to like um, sort of bucking the system of corporate baseball, you know, civil rights activists, really great just guy, you know, also a very sort of stylish guy. Like he, he was friends with like Muhammad Ali. Yeah. He was friends with like Bruce Lee, like all these like crazy figures around the seventies. But in June 12th, 1970, uh, he was with the Pittsburgh pirates. He was the pitcher for the Pittsburgh pirates. And he flew in from Pittsburgh to San Diego to play a game the very next day. Uh, but he had friends in Los Angeles, so he flew into San Diego. He was like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go to um, L.A. and just sort of hang out. So he drove from San Diego to L.A. to hang out with his friends. And his friends, obviously, are dudes. It was the 70s. So like he, yeah, was, totally. he was like, yo, let's, let's do all these drugs and have fun. <laughs> so uh, he was doing... LSD, barbiturates. He was doing benzos, amphetamines, all this stuff, and so he had a he had an epic day. And when he got to um, uh, LA, an epic day. Took all this LSD. I think it was like six tabs. Passed out. Woke up, and he's like, "Man, that was a crazy day." But the guy's girlfriend that he was with, the girlfriend basically said, "No, no, no, no. It's not today. It's." Tomorrow, you're pitching in the next three hours. You have to get to San Diego right now. He's like, no, 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 no. It's, it's just, it's Thursday. She's like, no, it's Friday. It's Friday. You have to go to San Diego. <laughs> so still on this very psychedelic state, you know, he's like, okay, I got to go to LA. 
So he he his you know team books a ticket for him. Of course, his team's like, Doc, where are you? You have to pitch. Yeah. You have to pitch in three hours. Where are you? Where are you? So he his team gets him a plane. The uh, guy's girlfriend, you know, arranges his stuff to get in a car to go to the airport. And but right before he leaves, he does two tabs of LSD uh, right before he gets on the plane. So right when he gets to San Diego, I mean, about an hour and a half. He is peaking on LSD. He's feeling it, but that wasn't enough. In San Diego, there was this very famous person in the crowd, and she had a bag of benzos, of amphetamines, of all these different pills. So he basically put his hand in the bag, grabbed about 12, and just popped them in his uh, mouth, just <laughs> threw them all in his mouth while he was on LSD. So, of course, you know, his team's like, oh, it's Doc Ellis, you know, as he's doing his thing. <laughs> so the game begins. He's right there basically peaking on LSD. He still has all these, all the LSD and the drugs from his system the uh, day before. And he just popped 12 benzos right <laughs> there. So he's like feeling it, right? So the rarest, so, 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 you know, he's a pitcher, right? So he's pitching the ball, he's throwing the ball. And the rarest achievement in all of sports is a no-hitter where you throw the ball so precisely that the other team, they can't score anything. They can't score anything because they can't hit the ball. They can't even get on base. They can't score anything. So Doc Ellis, peak of his LSD, Benzos, he's throwing the ball. He's throwing the ball. He's boom, strike, strike, strike. And in the beginning of the game, people saw that Doc was on a drug, but they didn't know which drug he was on. And Doc talks about this incident. He, he's like, okay, what do you, what he actually saw? He said that he, he, he saw, he couldn't even see the actual catcher or the batter all he saw was if the person was on the left side of the base or the right side of the base. And the catcher, which is the guy on his team that catches the ball, you know how a person, the catcher sends signals to the pitcher. It's like, okay, throw a fastball, throw up. And they, they do this with their fingers. But this guy had to wrap fluorescent tape around his fingers so that Doc can see. So all Doc said that he saw was if the batter was on the left side or the right side and the the actual tape on the fingers of the catcher <laughs> telling him what to throw. And he said that it was an absolutely chaotic game. He was throwing the ball like left and right, but which was throwing everybody off, was throwing off the entire team in the third inning, no hitter, fourth inning, no hitter, fifth inning, no hitter, sixth inning, no hitter. At that time, it's his team was like, yo, Doc Ellis is about to throw a no hitter. And it's a sort of superstitious thing. Right, where you, right. don't, you don't talk to the pitcher. You like leave him be. You do not interact with him at all because you want him to stay in the zone. Right. And of course, Doc Ellis's zone was a zone <laughs> fueled by serotonergic agonists, by dope, by dopamine agonists, all this stuff. But that was his zone. And he threw a no hitter which is the rarest achievement in all of sports. And guess what? 
we do not have video of that game because the MLB, for some ridiculous reason, wasn't filming that game that day. <laughs> so Man. all we have is a radio broadcast and the story of Doc Ellis and his teammates talking about this team, this this, this uh, time in this game. Also, I want to say Doc Ellis, the very next season, became a world champion. Man, that that's so awesome. Such an incredible story, man. It's that's so meta, Ellis. too. Because, like, you know, on a really deep trip, it's really difficult to bring back the gold, man. So it's, in some ways, I could see why it wasn't recorded. Like, it was almost meant to be not recorded. You know what I mean? <laughs> I know. It's, it's and, crazy. It just, it just adds to the sort of legendary aspect of Doc Ellis, too. Yeah. Is it – if you were to leave some of the listeners or the viewers with maybe a couple of books that you have read that you would – do you have a few books that you that you would – that you could recommend for people? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the first book, if I can recommend any book to just one book, just one single book, it would be a book called The Demon Haunted World, Science as a Candle in the Dark by Carl Sagan. A Demon Haunted World. It's, it's a pretty wild, a wild title. But it has, it's one of the greatest books about science that's ever been written. And it's easy to understand. Mm. Carl Sagan, for everybody that's out there, Carl Sagan is, was a brilliant astrophysicist. And he was brilliant because he took very complex things like astrophysics and brought them to a very poetic way of conveying mm. the information which is which is completely my inspiration he's the guy yeah. inspired me ever since i was a kid but please read that book a demon haunts of the world and also the second book is called rocks of ages by stephen j gould and it's a book and he's also a fantastic scientist by the way uh but it, it's a book that talks about spirituality in science and how these two entities or two magisteriums is what he calls it they don't have to conflict in fact in its pure essence science and spirituality don't conflict because mm -hmm. they operate on their own realms and the problems that have arose in history is when these two magisteriums try to prove the other one incorrect for example if religion tries to prove that science is incorrect like um galileo for example how the church was like no you know the sun is operates you know we are the center of the universe no 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 magisteriums or when science tries to prove religion is incorrect or doesn't exist or spirituality doesn't exist so it's a fantastic book, and it really breaks down how we should perceive science and spirituality in the wholeness of life. Wow. I love it, man. It's really well said. 
And uh, man, if I if 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 it wasn't midnight here, I would I would have talked to you for another two hours, man. <laughs> this is yeah. really fun, man. It it's so refreshing to me to get to be able to ask questions that have been on my mind for some time to someone who is doing not only what you do, but is excited to do what you do. But what's up with psychedelic science, man? Are you going there with your team? Do you have something you're planning on there? Do you yeah. have a paper? What's going on? So there? Fan, yeah, fan, fantastic. So yeah, um, we are going pretty deep, man. Uh, okay. We are going with the crew of, I believe seven people. So uh, myself, Jan Raymakers, Mara Kavara, Pablo, Maloroni, uh, Johannes Reknovic, uh, Elaine uh, Hagen, and Natasha Mason. Seven people. Um, so and a lot of people, it's their first time in America. Yeah. Um, which is going to be a great experience. Sure. Um, so, so, yeah, we're going. And so we, we're, we are all presenting something. Uh, I'm presenting functional near-infrared spectroscopy, which is the uh, imaging uh, um, tech that I used to look at the brain while the person's on DMT. I'm going to be talking about that. Um, really cool, you know, stuff about that. Mauro, which is a guy in our lab from Italy, fantastic scientist. He's going to be talking about uh, the therapeutic benefits of psychedelics. Natasha Mason is a fantastic uh, doctor. She's going to be talking about her own research. Jan Raymaker is a legend. He's been doing psychedelic. He's been doing research into all psychoactive since like 1982. What? You know? Uh, or yeah, so he he's been doing it for a very long time. He just celebrated his uh, his um, his birthday. I'm not gonna say what age it was. It just <laughs> happened. Uh, but but uh, and then you know Johannes is a guy that conducted a five meo DMT study where he uh, looked at the inhalation or like a spray mm. of five meo DMT, and he found that every person that was on the study uh, reported back that like their you know, depression was basically gone, which is fantastic. Right. It was an amazing study. Uh, and Pablo, who's also going to be there, he's the first person to ever research 2CB in a clinical mm. setting, which is a, a fantastic uh, psychedelic uh, synthesized by Alexander Shulgin. He's the first person to ever look at that. And uh, who else? Da, 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 da. And uh, I think that's everybody. Oh, and Elaine uh, Hazen, uh, which is a fantastic scientist from the Netherlands. She published a fantastic study about ADHD and mm. LSD. Um, and so to the point where like her paper is the most popular, most downloaded paper with the European Research um, Council. It's a fantastic study. So yeah, we're, we're all going to be there. Man. We're all going to be there. We're going to be rolling deep. Um, and, and I'll take some pictures and I'll put it on Twitter for all you guys to see. Are you guys going to... Um... Is there like going to be seven pills and two of them are placebos and five of them are high doses of LSD when you present? <laughs> that, you know what? I only wish we can give people psychedelics. I would love to give people like a dose of uh, psychedelics before I present. That'd be great. Uh, but uh, no, man. I mean, but honestly, I don't know. It, it's so the whole conference is a pretty wild one. It's a uh, maps, which is the biggest, yeah. uh, um, uh, Nonprofit organization, which you already know, uh, but um, it's it so it's sort of being told or like marketed as the biggest psychedelic science conference uh, in the world, uh, which is an, a pretty big, hefty claim. So uh, that's the reason why we're going out there. We're going to see what it's about, and we're taking our lab, going deep, and and we're going to experience for a lot of people 
their, their first taste of American culture, which is going to be pretty, pretty uh, wild experience. Yeah, it is going to be. You know, I, I heard um, there was an, an article that came out in Spanner magazine, which is Cody Shirk's magazine. And they it, mm. it's an online magazine. And they, they spoke about an experience that was – I don't know if it was a, a document. I don't think it was an actual study. It was more of just like an anecdotal study of this guy whose father had dementia. And he was using a 5-MeO-DMT nasal spray. And they really saw like a lot of benefits from neurodegenerative diseases. Have you have you seen some of that research where they're using the five MEO DMT to the spray to help combat some neurodegenerative diseases? Yeah, no. So um, I, I we have, and one of the guys that's in our lab, Johannes, right. he's right. focusing on that topic. That exactly. and, and yeah, it's it's pretty interesting to see that five MEO DMT, which it's sort of unfortunate that it even has dmt mm. in its title because really right. they right. operate completely differently um but when it comes to the therapeutic potential of 5 mea dmt yeah it's it's something that has very long lasting ramifications for things like um like like you know spinogenesis or um, neurogenesis mm -hmm. which is the rebuilding and re, re sort of structuralization of brain cells, basically, which is a, a very important thing when it comes to repairing, um, you know, parts of the brain that perhaps have um, atrophied with things like, you know, depression or, or very sort of um, neuro, neuro um, diseases, which is a, a sort of way to atrophy mm -hmm. this process, atrophy the brain. So also, I want to say this, depression is also resides in that territory of neurodegenerative diseases because it atrophies the brain like the the more stressed out you are mm -hmm. you can actually see your brain cells and your prefrontal cortex atrophy you you can see them sort of lose integrity and like lose strength um and in that and when once that happens it's reported that people start to get depressed start to get sort of like you know maladaptive behaviors but Functionally, uh, we, it's because of this atrophying of the prefrontal cortex. And the reason why we have that evidence is because in 2021, a fantastic scientist from Yale uh, named uh, Ling Xingxiao uh, wrote or uh, discovered that that process happens. And that also, the thing is, if you introduce psilocybin in this, in this mm -hmm. one, she looked at psilocybin. If you introduce psilocybin to this atrophied area, like the you know brain cells are like sort of decreased and weakened. If you introduce psilocybin, brain cells get stronger and restructuralize within seconds. Wow! Within seconds. Seconds, not hours, not days. Seconds. That's so seconds. crazy. And. It's also persistent in that if you do like an actual dose of shrooms, then this this sort of strengthening of these brain cells in the prefrontal cortex persists for days, weeks, months after the actual mm -hmm. dose. So that's, that's pretty wild stuff. Yeah, it's it's mind blowing to think about. I, I I was hearing some chatter too about 
the state of neuroplasticity that happens after certain psychedelics. And they say on, on some level, I think, you know, for some level, the neuroplasticity stays around for a month on, on certain psychedelics. It's two months on like a high dose of five MEO team is like a year or something like that. I don't know what those dates are, but is there some research that backs up that that particular state of cognitive awareness stays with you for longer periods of time, the more you use it or how does that yeah, so uh, neuroplasticity is so interesting um, because, you know, we have we sort of see this very good correlation between psychedelics, neuroplasticity right. and like, you know, healing basically. Right. But. Um, but methamphetamines also have neuroplasticity. <laughs> Crystal meth has neuroplasticity. So either. There's different types of neuroplasticity mm. that we haven't really discerned yet. We just sort of group everything in neuroplasticity or that pharmacological bros should have perhaps should open up meth labs as opposed to psychedelic retreat centers. <laughs> maybe that's the maybe that's what we should do. <laughs> yeah, I think we kind of already have them. Like if you look at some of the Fortune 500 companies, like an Amazon Workplace is almost like a meth lab. Not that they're producing <laughs> meth there, but like you kind of have to yeah. be on meth to do it, man. Like do at least it, it was yeah, exactly. when I worked at some places like that. Not that I was yeah. on it all the time, but you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, all right, man. I, I'll, I'll just keep talking to you. I just, I just won't <laughs> stop. It won't stop, man. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> like, <cut> it. <laughs> but it's a real pleasure. I got the link tree down in the show notes down there. But where can people find you? If Linktree seems to be a good one, but you're everywhere, man. You're on Twitter, you're on Instagram. Yeah. But where where would you prefer to send people to? Yeah, man. So uh follow me on Twitter, uh at Tapado, at T-I-P-A-D-O, Tapado. You can follow me on Twitter. Um, I, I tweet pretty actively. Yeah. You can follow me on Instagram at Zeus Z-E-U-S Tapado, T-I-P-A-D-O. You can follow me on uh, on that. You can also follow me on Twitch, which mm -hmm. is once again, at Zeus Tapato. You can follow me there. Uh, talk about a lot of uh, science whenever I'm on Twitch. <clears throat> follow me there. And you could just, uh, what else? I think I think that's that's all the socials. I'm not on Facebook. I'm not on TikTok. I'm not on LinkedIn. So yeah, Twitter, Instagram, and Twitch is where I reside. Or just Google me, Zeus Tapato. Yeah. You can find me there. And we didn't even get into all the gaming you do. Man, what, what are the name of your gaming companies? Stone Gamer, yes. Yeah. Stone Gamer is a company that I started in Los Angeles before I came here, and we are the first company to integrate uh, cannabis and gaming. Uh, we had a e we we have an esports section where people uh, get high on cannabis and then they play games, uh, <laughs> and it's called Stone Gamer. We even have different tiers of people getting stoned, like how boxers have like heavyweight, featherweight, lightweight. We have the heavyweight people where they have like maybe two bong hits of uh, cannabis right. that's sort of like measured out. And we have the sort of featherweight, which is like a half a bong hit. And we see that people really enjoy um, gaming while on cannabis. And uh, before I came here, we also did a study where we, um, we, we had people that played Call of Duty, which is a very uh, popular first person game where you shoot people and stuff, very intense. We had a study where we we had people play Call of Duty, and then we had them take LSD. We had them wait for a day, and then we had them play Call of Duty again to see if 
the the their performance of Call of Duty changed before and after the LSD. Mm -hmm. And the results of that study will be replicated in our lab in the next two years. Man, it's, you know, the more that I think about the gaming aspect, it seems like there's some foreshadowing in what you've already done to maybe what's coming on the horizon. <laughs> Listen, man, it's, it's like, uh, yeah, it's, it's all connected. It's all connected. I know it uh, is, man. It's all connected. All right. You got, you have to come back, man. Cause we're, we're just touching base with this and, uh, Damn it. I wish it wasn't so late. I I really love it, man. It was really fun. I hope you have a tremendous rest of your day. Get packed. Get out to Denver. Yes. yes. Crush it out there with your whole team. Yes. Tell your whole team I said what's up. And um, yes. I'll talk to you soon, man. But I'm going to hang up with the audience, but I want to talk to you real briefly after this. So Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Okay. See you later, guys. Much love. Yep. Aloha, everybody. Thanks for hanging out. We'll talk to you guys soon. Aloha. Aloha, everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge, and I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now, and it's been so rewarding to me that I would just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart, listen to the song on the wind, and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true. But you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision and I hope you all conquer it and I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better, your life will be better and you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it. <laughs>